This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy days are here again. Uh, along with Jeff and Terry, the gang is gathered researching all night to help you uh, live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. Today, no exception, we're going to be talking about uh, how more college students seem to be majoring in perfectionism. I asked some of the college students we work with. Yes. They agree. They totally agree. Too many people themselves and they included. see it in their, their classmates stressing out because they didn't get an A. Stressing out because the A wasn't the top A in the class. It was oh. maybe the fourth A in the class. They didn't get extra, extra credit. Yeah. Weren't you always annoyed with those students who were like, yes. oh, I only got a 3.85. <laughs> you just wanted to hit them. Yeah. But that's violent. And then I didn't recognize half the words on the test as being English. So that was my problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like a physiology class. I'm like, I don't even, did we even read this? Was what this in the book? What language is this? <laughs> so crazy. So we'll work on that. Uh, if you have a, a child going to college, you're going to want to listen up on that one. Plus, interesting uh, news out of Austin. The Austin bomber uh, kills himself with an explosive device. The police were closing in on him, and a bomb. the bomb went off. I don't wow. Think they, I don't think they know exactly how or why or whatever, but it went off. Unbelievable that what was going on in Texas. People were terrified. So we'll be talking. Um, let's, we'll be talking about that plus other news headlines. In fact, let's get to the headlines of Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? As you said, a man whom authorities were attempting to arrest early today in a string of bombings in Austin killed himself with an explosive device. As authorities closed in, they were actually waiting for backup, and he saw them and drove away, pulled off on the side of the road, down the ro- down the ways, and then blew himself up. Um, they don't know if it was a mistake or if yeah. he was trying to fiddle with something. And, but like a you know, 20, up, he's a know, 24-year-old guy, right? 24-year-old white male is the only description they're giving at the moment. They identified the suspect in the past 24 hours based largely on information gained after police said the suspect shipped an explosive device from a FedEx store in Sunset Valley, a suburb around Austin, so they could track the store he was at. That evidence included security video of him entering the store. The authorities also relied upon store receipts showing suspicious transactions from the person and obtained a search warrant for his Google search history that showed him conducting searches they considered suspicious, maybe how to build a bomb. Holy cow. Uh, authorities relied upon cell phone technology to trace the suspect to a hotel, and that's when they were tracking him down. It's it's really amazing that they were on to this bomber this fast. Right. They needed that FedEx one, right? The one where that he'd sent to the FedEx store cuz then or through the FedEx store cuz then they got all that information. Then they could it. track the package back to the store, see the guy walk in the store and they had a picture of him. Holy cow. Whereas if you watched any of the shows recently about the Unabomber, none of that technology existed. So yeah. he could just do what he wanted. He'd he for was years. anonymous. By the way, this was uh, what five bombs he had placed? Yes. Oh boy. They found a Another suspicious package at a Goodwill store that went off, but it was more of an incendiary device, not a bomb. Just, Either way, so then, then it burned you things. Are, are all of these related? Now they got to go sort that they're out. They're also saying they're not sure if he definitely is the guy. Yeah. So if you see anything suspicious, let guy. us know. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a problem, but he is, is he the guy responsible? Yeah. They're not sure. A teenager armed with a handgun shot and critically wounded a girl inside a Maryland school Tuesday, and the shooter was killed when a school resource officer confronted him moments after the gunfire erupted. 
A third student was in good condition after he was shot. The shooting at Great Mills High School a month after 17 people killed in the Florida high school intensified calls for Congress to act on gun violence in schools. This week, students across the country plan an anti-gun violence march on on the nation's capital. That'll be this weekend, I believe, uh, on the 24th. In Maryland, it it wasn't immediately clear whether the shooter took his own life or was killed by the resource officer's bullet. But nonetheless, the county sheriff uh, said that the the officer was credited with preventing any more loss of life by confronting the shooter. Wow. Instead of the approach in Florida, which was to wait outside. Do you remember when the officer in the school was there to just keep you from doing drugs? Yeah. Yeah. Or or he was the guy that, you know, you'd like shoot the breeze with as you were waiting in line to get your hoagie or whatever it was. Yeah, check out. Yeah. Oh. His gun and his handcuffs. In other news, President Donald Trump's top advisors reportedly warned him against congratulating President Vladimir Putin for winning his re-election, with aides writing in all capital letters, do not congratulate. The two leaders spoke by phone on Tuesday in the White House, and the Kremlin, uh, the White House and Kremlin both confirmed. Aides also requested that Trump mention the nerve attack on the former Russian spy in the United Kingdom, which the U.S. and its allies have all blamed on Russia. Trump did not mention the attack and did congratulate Putin. His congratulatory message drew rebu- rebukes on Capitol Hill with Senator John McCain, who's not on Capitol Hill. Kind of yeah. funny, he's actually in Arizona, saying Trump insulted the Russian people for congratulating Putin on winning a sham election. How did you do it, Pootie? How did you do it? Pootie? Is that what we're calling him now? Pootie and the Blowfish. Oh, yeah. Their band? Great band. The Russian cover band. Yeah. All the information there of him being told something, it's written on documents in front of him on his desk. Don't do it. It's considered a leak, obviously. But he he wants to find out how he had such a runaway victory. Only a small circle of people in the White House knew that President Trump ignored the all-caps advice from his national security advisors for his phone call Tuesday with Russian uh, President Putin. Uh, One of them leaked it to the Washington Post, leaving Trump and his senior staff furious and rattled. As to how that information got out, you're looking at a very tight group of people here who are supposed to be confidants, and someone's talking to the media. Each of the possible leakers are trusted with sensitive national secrets, and the speed and sensitivity of the leak prompted immediate finger-pointing within the administration. Who's the leaker? Well, I, I hope it's not supposedly the next one to go. McMasters? Yeah. Well, maybe. Or Kelly. I mean, these are all guys that have been... He yelled at uh, the Australian president yeah. like just a few days after taking office, right. and then there have been some several dust-ups with the Mexican president as he's sitting in the Oval Office talking on the phone with another world leader, and someone's running out and talking to the media about it. Unbelievable. But then again, you know, Putin might not be the guy you want to congratulate because that wasn't exactly an election. Right. It was more of a... Well, it was reality TV, so maybe that's what Trump wants maybe to see. What, what were your ratings like? Yeah, how, what, did you get good ratings? Was it good for you? So uh, finally, Virginia Beach will launch its Adopt a Drain program. To, uh, they <laughs> launched it yesterday, allowing residents to pick a storm drain, name it, and keep an eye on it to let the city know when and where there are any issues. Oh, cute. The city doesn't expect residents to do major maintenance. Big problems should be reported, but residents can do simple fixes like making sure things like leaves and debris aren't blocking the exterior of the drain. This is something anyone can do as part of the yard maintenance, says the head of the Adopt a Drain program. The city council says it will help the city fulfill regulations related to water quality and fill a gap when it comes to inspection and maintenance of stormwater infrastructure. Oh, that's, that's nice. There are 40,000 drains in Virginia Beach. An estimated the program could save the city about $35,000 a year by naming your drain. So, I, Matt, what would you name a drain? Um... I, I I'd probably name him Leak. 
leak. Yeah. Hmm. I I was Leave. I grew up being told to never name a drain because really? if you name it, then you can't eat it. That's a great point. Um, now you're going to have all these commercials on like Saturday hmm. where there's some guy's going to be kneeling next to a drain, <laughs> saying, "Look at this drain," and they'll like have junk all over it. Right. And there'll be some like Sarah McLaughlin Sarah could McLaughlin do it. Song. Yeah. I will remember you. There you go. They'll just be hosing it off. (laughs) Name a drain. Name a drain. Oh, I think that's great. Plus, think of all the people that have never had a drain. Now they can have one. And, like, think of the family time that you could have with your drain. I was reading a story the other day. There's another another city that's just finalizing. They they, they narrowed it down to three finalists for the – what uh, manhole cover art contest? Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> there's a contest for that. Yeah, so they'll they'll go ahead and cast all the manhole covers, and they'll be there for thirty, forty years, and that's your art that everyone's driving on. Oh, that's oh, pretty nice. It'd be great. So, uh, name your drain first. You got to adopt it. You can't just name it. You got to adopt it first. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how more college students seem to be majoring in perfectionism, and it's overwhelming them. We'll give you some tools, some ideas to uh, cut through that. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Good won't get me into med school. That might be uh, something you've heard from one of your kids uh, trying to either get into med school or get into the university. Uh, all the stress, the the anxiety they're feeling about their studies. Today, social media is creating a world where students might have an unrealistic educational and professional uh, ideal or standard, replacing good, being a good person or a good student with the need to be perfect or perfectionism. Here to speak with us today about perfectionism is Thomas Curran, an assistant professor at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. He's been uh, studying extensively this topic and uh, has uh, was um, has some great information for us, I think, about how we can handle or, or coach or lead our children um, to, uh, to manage this perfectionism or this need to be perfect. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Talk to us about um, what you are seeing um, with our with college students uh, around the world. Do, perfectionism is on the rise, I hear. That's right. We've recently done some work uh, looking at how perfectionism has changed over time among uh, well, separate cohorts of college students um, from 1989 to 2016. And you're absolutely right. The analysis that we've recently done has suggested that uh, levels of perfectionism among more recent generations are far higher than they were uh, among previous generations. And um, we think that that's quite an interesting finding. We think that chimes, well, it seems to have chimed anyway with a lot of uh, people who have written and reported on the work. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting find that I think we need to pay attention to. Mm. What is, just define for us how, how you define perfectionism so we're all on the same page there. So perfectionism is uh, broadly defined as an irrational desire for flawlessness uh, in combination with harshly self-critical tendencies when we don't uh, achieve 
uh, our highest high achievement standards. And there are three main dimensions or core dimensions of perfectionism. The first is what we most, uh, I guess most of us would uh, think about when we think about perfectionism is this idea of high or excessively high um, personal standards and, and the kind of uh, quintessential overstriver, somebody who works and uh, relentlessly uh, hard. And that's called self-oriented perfectionism because it comes from within. But there's another dimension of perfectionism, which is a social dimension of perfectionism, which is the perception that the uh, social environment and the immediate others in our social environment are, are highly expectant of us, or excessively highly expectant of us. That's to say that they expect us to perform perfectly. Mm. That's called socially prescribed perfectionism. And the final dimension is the type of perfectionism that's directed outwards onto others. So that's this idea that uh, we expect perfection from others and are punitive when they don't perform. Uh, and that's called other-oriented perfectionism. And uh, those three dimensions are collectively what we understand as this perfectionism uh, personality. And, and I guess it, it, it probably doesn't matter if you're putting it on yourself, if others are putting it on you, or if the environment expects it. Do they all have the same results of, of increased stress, increased anxiety? What's really interesting from our analysis is that it's that social dimension of perfectionism, so the perception that others are highly expectant of us, that has undertaken the biggest rise uh, in recent years, actually twice twice the rate of the other two, and that has obviously implications for uh, social pressures uh, that we might come on to. Uh, why that's most important or why that's uh, particularly uh, interesting is because socially prescribed perfectionism of those three dimensions that I mentioned uh, displays the largest relationship or correlation uh, with serious mental illness. So those people who have high levels of self or socially prescribed perfectionism, sorry, uh, tend to display uh, or tend to experience, I should say, uh, high levels of anxiety, depression, um, and even in the worst cases, there's a lot of research to suggest that it's associated with suicidal thoughts. So hmm. uh, it's a highly negative trait. Yeah, I bet, too, because it's it's your world. that You feel like the world's closing in on you, it seems like. The world's demanding it of you. Yeah, for sure, and, and we've 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 kind of speculated on some of the pressure, but but you've already kind of mentioned a few of them in your in your introduction there. You know, uh, higher educational expectations on younger people are certainly, we think, feeding into a perception that the social environment is highly demanding. Social media too, uh, where people young people are bombarded with unrealistic uh, ideals of the perfectible self. Again can breed a sense that uh, the social environment expects us to be perfect. And, of course, we can't really escape it. So uh, when we tie our self-worth to high achievement and 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 pre- presenting perfect, perfect image and perfect uh, achievement scores to others, then, of course, when we don't meet those expectations, that can be highly damaging for our... Uh, for our psychological well-being. So are you so you're seeing the numbers go up, you're seeing a lot of more of it kind of being in the social uh, environment area um, that drives it. Some of that might be social media. Is it how how does it manifest? So as as students are in college and they they get there and they feel this perfectionism kind of creeping in on them, what do you see that they do? How do they go about um, you know, demonstrating and acting out on their perfectionism? So we think perfectionism is largely a coping mechanism uh, to the excessive expectations that young people are placing on themselves and they feel that are being placed on them. Uh, you know, when 
uh, performance and achievement is so important in, in contemporary culture, not only to reach the highest, uh, let's say, to get the best GPA scores in school, but also to reach the best colleges and therefore the best access to the best jobs. Achievement is so, so important in this context. So we, so young people are not, tend to define themselves in very strict and narrow terms of a perfect GPA or a or access or getting into the best uh, college. And, of course, what that does is, in order to cope with with those demands, you tend to internalize perfectionistic tendencies, high, excessively high standards, excessively high goals. Because of course, if we do that, we're setting ourselves or putting ourselves in the best position to succeed in this culture, which has excessively high demands. So things like uh, overstriving, um, high levels of persistence, and uh, to the point where diminishing returns. That's to say that we go. We go to the very limit of our capacity and then further, so not so it becomes damaging to our um sense, you know uh, it becomes very exhausting cognitively and and physically uh, so we tend to see um those sorts of sorts of behaviors creep into uh, but also lots of worry and doubt about our actions and concern over uh, how we're perceived and and how we perform, which of course are also very damaging for our uh, not only our, our sense of self esteem but also our um our levels of mental our mental health overall depression mm. anxiety etc um so we think it's certainly a way in which young people are coping with these excessive demands uh, and education is a big one but um it's not the only one of course there are also excessive uh, image demands that are placed on young people in social media, and, and the same things apply. Mm. Uh, again, we're speaking with uh, um, a Cur- Thomas Curran, who is a, a, an assistant professor in the Department of Health at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom, and his research focuses on perfectionism in young people. We're talking about the fact that more and more college students seem to be majoring in perfectionism. Perfectionism is on the rise, and uh, much of it, it seems like, is is coming from you know increased expectations on educational achievement, also um, uh, some social media pressures as well. What, Thomas, as a father of two uh, college-age kids, three college-age kids, what, what are things we could be doing as parents to, um, to make sure that, that we set our kids up to, to maybe not fall into this perfectionism trap? I think there's a few things that um that, that we can we can do. I, I think the first and the most important uh lesson is that um self-compassion is very very important. Uh we 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 tend to put everything on the line and and it's understandable that parents respond to high pressures uh by involvement and over-involvement in kids uh, educational activities but but over-involvement and high levels of uh, surveillance, which we also see increasing among parenting practices, uh, can 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 be counterproductive because they they tacitly teach children that uh, or reinforce this idea that achievement is really really important and that it's the only criteria of success or worth. And I think we need to be very vigilant of that and to emphasize that hard work, persistence, diligence, flexibility, being conscientious, you know, these are all great goals and great aspirations, but uh, perfection and flawlessness is not. Mm. And uh, so making sure that uh, goals are reasonable, 
that when your young people don't do as well as they want to do, that, that we make sure that they don't self-castigate, that they see the opportunity for learning in that in that space uh, and recalibrate goals downwards so that they're so that hopefully the next time they achieve in which case we can start to build those aspirations upwards in more manageable chunks and so there's not there's not there's not a consistent uh they're not consistently faced with failure so i think self being self-compassionate and and making sure that we see the opportunities for learning and failure is really really important for parents to teach the kids um because it because it doesn't reinforce this social ideal that achievement is the be-all and end-all and it seems like a lot of parents, even uh, like in the United States, we have access to our kids' grades online, and now we're checking them daily. We're checking if they're turning their assignments in. We're so over-managing the details that it probably, you're saying, gives the illusion to the child that this is so critical, that we have to be perfect at it. For sure. And and I think the 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 metricalization if that's the word of education has been really damaging for young people because it's it's it gives them instant feedback as to where they sit in the social hierarchy both in the in the microcosm of their own schools but not only that of course uh where they rank nationally amongst others and and i think that's counterproductive because uh, uh after all learning and education is really about teaching young people how to interact effectively with the world, uh, how to learn to learn and contribute meaningfully to society, whether that be through um, if they want to go and be an engineer or they want to go and be a scientist or whatever it might be. Uh, It's really about that process that that allows them to interact with the world effectively. And we've kind of changed it into uh, something that's all outcome-focused and focused on the metric, focused on the grade, and forgetting that there's a bigger picture to the learning process. And I think it's really important for uh, at society for us to recognize that uh, and for parents in particular to sort of resist that urge uh, to constantly monitor and constantly uh, be over-involved because that that reinforces uh, this message that kids should only really value themselves based on, on, on that metric. And and there's lots of research to show that, you know, when, when kids do see learning uh, as an opportunity to develop and grow, they actually perform better hmm. because they've got less stress, they've got less anxiety, they feel freer to explore and be curious. And as a consequence, uh, you tend to see that they perform better in exams and uh, courseworks and, and all the rest of it. So actually, it, it can be counterproductive uh, to be over-involved. Is, give us a little take, too, on the social media side of this. I mean, if I could, if I could talk my college-aged kid into being less involved in social media, do you sense that would help this? Social media is an interesting one because... It can be very positive, uh, particularly uh, for people with inter- or shared interests. It, it brings them together around common goals and can be very helpful uh, to build communities and, and, and relatedness among, among people. So uh, I think it, we have to be careful to resist the temptation to sort of jump on social media as, 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 as uh, universally uh, negative. But 
But the but the, what I would say is that social media can be problematic for those individuals that use it with underlying vulnerabilities, and unfortunately, one of the underlying vulnerabilities is perfectionism, because those uh, who the perfectionists tend to use social media more. Uh, purely because it's a way of reinforcing a sense of self-esteem that's based on comparing favorably with others. So they feel that it's a platform that they can use to receive interper- that's others' approval and interpersonal validation through things like likes and um, uh, and uh, 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 friends and all the rest of it. Again, these are metrics, by the way, you know, yeah. how many likes, how many friends. Um, but th- it's a way for them to feel like they can... A, a gather a sense of self-esteem so they use it to bolster unmet needs and in, in, uh, an unmet sense of self-esteem and that's highly damaging because within that social media space they're constantly bombarded as I say with unrealistic ideals other people's curations of a perfect life and lifestyle and of course they take those curations at face value and make negative judgments about their own life and their own uh, image and of course over time and if we constantly use in social media to try to bolster our sense of self-worth is highly damaging because ultimately we're always going to end up feeling worse than other people which impacts on our self-esteem which impacts on our mental health so social media is not university negative but of course if you see in your in your children certain vulnerabilities and perfectionistic tendencies i would definitely encourage that you try to uh, limit uh, the time uh, on on the platforms because they can be damaging for those individuals. Yes, great, great insight. Uh, Thomas Curran, thank you so much for your work, your insights. Again, Thomas is an assistant professor in the Department for Health at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom and uh, given us some great lessons on perfectionism and, boy, all the metrics we're creating when you think about it, it's... It has consequences when we measure our children by so many metrics every day. Uh, The likes on their social media, the grades, how many trophies, how many yards they earned in running for the ball in football. Lots of stuff that we're building our children's identity around, and it is uh, driving up perfectionism. We'll continue the discussion to a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Have you ever been uh, plagued by this uh, perfectionism? I, um, I see it in my life in a very specific way when I write things. Um, so I have... I, I literally right now have white papers that I've created on to, to write five books. And as I go through life, I keep picking up more information and then throwing them into these white papers. And so I'm ready to write five books. I just I just don't want to write them yet because part of what I found is writing my last book, I get so uh, kind of perfectionistic in the outcome of what needs to be in the book that I, I – I, I become immobile. I won't progress. I don't move forward. And I see that notice it's just this simple little concept that's in my head that makes me think I've got to, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. And the funny thing is in, in all my perfection on that one idea, I then turn it over to editors and then they just tear it to pieces. They just obviously didn't see how perfect it was. So if you notice perfectionism is in the eye of the beholder. I guess unless, unless of course, you know, 
um, you bowl the perfect game in bowling, there's there's something that you can do perfectly, right? Three hundred, you can you can hit that number. The hard part about perfectionism, though, is that it's not even just what it does to me; it's also what it does to everyone around me. Then I start to demand perfection. And now that we have the kids' grades that we can look at every day, every week, I suggest to the, my clients that I work with, um, they're, they're checking it daily. I suggest they don't do it daily. I would check it maybe monthly, twice a month. Let's get the numbers twice a month. Let's not focus on it as a daily endeavor. Uh, maybe at the very most every week, but really spread out the, the way and the time we look at it. If you look at it at all, wouldn't it make more sense to just start to find out from our child what they're actually learning, what, how they're growing? The the um, some here, let me give you a little test to see if you are a perfectionist. I'll ask you some questions. You run through your head, and it'll kind of help you see if you. If you're, if you're running or tending or trending toward perfectionism. Do you feel like your accomplishments are never good enough? You value people based on their achievements. You know, is an MD more valuable than a PhD, but a PhD is more valuable than a JD? Is a JD better than no degree? How about a master's degree? Do, do they have to have, uh, you know, do they have to be an Olympic athlete or do you always lead with their achievement? Do you believe that your best just doesn't cut it? Do you take mistakes personally and then you hesitate to try again? Are you vulnerable to rejection? Do you uh, set impossible to reach goals for yourself? Are you hard on others and on yourself? Do you expect perfection from others? Do you develop almost an obsession with it? Uh, do you fear that uh, failure in the relationship um, you know, is, is a sign that, you know, if you have to go get marriage help or marriage counseling, is it a sign that you're not, you're not good enough? Um, you actually end up not pursuing relationships because you fear the outcome might be that you might, they may not work. Uh, do you tend to be critical of your partner? So if so, you may have uh, a bit of the perfectionism in you. Um, Webster defines perfectionism as a disposition which regards anything short of perfect as unacceptable. And the torment for perfectionists is that they never find anything perfect because it doesn't exist. It just can't happen. It doesn't happen. And so you end up putting yourself in this ever never-ending spiral where your goal is something that you can't attain, and then you become obsessed with seeing how you don't ever get there. And it makes you spiral and spiral and spiral. So I want you to be thinking about you. How has perfectionism been impacting your relationship? Can you actually build a healthy relationship uh, if you are a perfectionist? And how can we start to um, how can we start to get rid of it? Like our good doctor Curran was telling us, if if you sense that you've got uh, perfectionism in you, if you sense that you it's already kind of part of your identity, your psyche, you might be one of the people that ought to start to minimize your use of social media, because social media does tend to play on the perfectionist. It's, you know, you might use it in an inappropriate way that would actually, you use it to get more likes, you use it to get more external validation, you use it to go be more comparative to everyone else that's on your, your chain. And so um, you might want to back off of that. We also want to maybe, if you see it in our children, start to minimize the metrics. 
and make life less about the measurables and start focusing on what I call the intangibles. The the tangibles are those things that we can see. The intangibles are the things that are harder to see. Um, you know, a grade on a report card is a tangible that I can see, but the hard work and discipline that was put into that grade are the intangibles we can't see. And it might be more valuable to start shining our light on those intangibles, the hard work. Talk to your kids about work ethic and and their hard work. Talk to them about their discipline. Talk to them about how resilient they are, how adaptable they are, how they could actually, uh, when that teacher threw that curveball and had everybody, you know, not do this assignment but do this assignment, talk about how well they handled those intangibles that got that assignment done. Um, there's so much more power in helping the kids gather the tools of the intangible than than just solely the tools of the tangible, especially when you live in a world that um, would rather hold up the tangibles as the only way of of living, the only way of making it work, the only way of making life valuable and good. We also, I think all of us need to be more careful with how we um, and what we hold up and what we esteem. You know, we probably ought not make as big of a deal about something that um, that seems, you know, like trivial in the end of uh, a, a vast or a basketball game, a football touchdown. These are wonderful things, but again, they're they're things that in the in the end won't matter on the deathbed. And yet we spend so much time looking for the perfect team, the perfect game, the perfect outfit, the perfect partner. I think it's impacting a lot of our dating today. It's impacting a lot of how our our youth uh, see marriage. I know a lot of people that don't want to go near marriage simply because it's not perfect. And yet, sadly, it's in that imperfection, honestly, that we grow, that we develop, that we become who we really are. We need the cracks in each of us in order to see the light, the goodness. I've noticed with my own clients, we need the breaks. They need the, they need the imperfections that make life hard so that they eventually have to look to God to live, right? They have to look to their God to figure out how to get through these difficult times with these difficult uh, imperfections. So praise the imperfection. Find the good in what you think is the bad and see if we can't make life a little bit more valuable in the chaos or in the breaks or in the imperfections. I don't know. It's a hard, hard uh, thing that I think all of us have to battle with at some point. And we now know our, our youth are really suffering from it. So let's, let's watch out for that. Little, just a little advice for you. Not, it's not perfect. Relax. It's just an idea. But uh, don't make arguments either that perfection, perfectionism is necessary. That's an illusion. Your God will eventually make you perfect. And by the way, your God already thinks you're probably doing a great job, even in the midst of all your imperfections. So let's let's be real about that. We will continue the journey. Up next, we're going to revisit an interview I did with Gary Chapman on the five love languages.
Welcome back, friends. You know, um, a few months back, I, I talked to Dr. Gary Chapman. He's a nationwide marriage counselor, pastor, seasoned pr- uh, writer, and author. He's the author of the bestseller, uh, the book, The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate, which is a bestseller. Everybody's heard about it. And I wanted to go uh, to go revisit his interview. And so a few months um, back, as I was talking to him, I asked him um, to help us to know how to become fluent in the language of love. I began the interview by asking if he had any idea that his book would be so popular. You know, Matt, uh, when I wrote the book, I knew that the concept would help people because I'd been using it in my counseling for several years. Yeah. But no, I had no idea that it would sell uh, now 10 million copies. Is it 10 million? And be translated now into 50 languages around the world. Unbelievable. And because, I mean, I've written a book and it's like, it's hard. Books are hard. And to even know if they're going to sell. And But I have so many people in my office and, and they're citing your book all the time. Every time I say, you know, people have different needs. It, the first thought that comes to mind is the are the five love languages. Walk us through these five love languages. One of them is words of affirmation using words to affirm the other person. You look nice in that outfit. I really appreciate what you did. One of the things I like about you is it's just using words to affirm them. Mm. You can speak the words. You can write the words. I guess you could sing the words, Matt. <laughs> let's let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's using words to affirm the other person. Uh, you know, there's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Mm. So when you give your spouse compliments, you are, you are building them up. When you give them critical remarks, it's tearing them down. Yeah. So words of affirmation. Uh, another love language is gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. Uh, my academic background before I studied counseling was anthropology, the mm. study of cultures. We've never discovered a culture where gift-giving is not an expression of love. It's universal. Really? You know, yeah. the gift says, hey, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And I like to say uh, the gift doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, you can pick a flower in the front yard. That's what children do. Yeah. They pick dandelions. Dandelions. They give them to their mothers. That's right. You know? So don't, they don't have to be ex- expensive. Uh, the old saying is it's the thought that counts. But I like to remind folks, it's not the thought left in your head that counts. It's the gift that came out of the thought oh, yeah. in your head. Right. So, so gifts. And then there's uh, acts of service, doing something for your spouse that you know they would like for you to do. You mentioned washing dishes, you know. Yeah. It could include things like vacuuming floors, cooking meals, uh, mowing grass, watching the car, walking the dog, changing the baby's diaper. Woo, big active <laughs> right. <services. laughs> Anything you know your spouse would like for you to do. You know the old saying, Matt, actions speak louder than words. That's true for these people. So it's true. Is their love language. Because you could actions. sit and you could tell this person you love them, but oh. they just want to see it. They want, it, they want the Absolutely. service. Absolutely. You know, uh, my, my love language is words of affirmation. So when I got married, what did I do? I gave my wife words of affirmation. That's right. I, mean, I didn't know anything about love languages, but I just knew that's the way you express love. You know, so I gave her words of affirmation. And uh, I discovered later that didn't make her feel love. In fact, one night she said to me, you know, you, you keep on telling me that you love me. If you love me, why don't you help me? <laughs> yeah, why don't you get off your duff and vacuum the floor? It's so true. Yeah, so acts of service, and then there's quality time. 
giving your spouse your undivided attention. I do not mean sitting on the couch watching television because someone else has your attention. I'm talking about sitting on the couch with the TV off, looking at each other, talking to each other, or taking a walk down the road together and talk, or going out to eat, assuming that you talk. You know, Matt, you can almost always tell the difference between dating couples and married couples in (laughs) a restaurant. You know, dating couples are looking at each other and talking. Married couples are sitting there and eating or more likely looking at their smartphone, you know. <laughs> so true, isn't it? So now, I mean, and that's a big, that's a, that's a thief of, qual- of a person that loves quality time is when you pull that phone out. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely. So quality time, and then number five is physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. That's why we pick up babies and hold them and kiss them and cuddle them. And long before the baby understands the meaning of the word love, the baby feels love, Mm. a physical touch. So in marriage, it's such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of the marriage, uh, hand on their shoulder, uh, driving down the road, you just put your hand on their leg, uh, you know, sitting around the house, you trip them. Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding, man. Yeah, but you tease, you touch, you t- I mean, but it's, it really <laughs> is. It's kind of any physical. Mouth. Yeah. <laughs> A Did, physical touch. Yeah. I think it's fascinating um, how you've, uh, because this is the complaint. Everybody has a complaint, right? And one of the things that I love about your approach is it's pretty obvious what your partner's uh, love language is simply by what they complain about. Yeah, the complaint reveals the love language. You're exactly right. If your wife says, we don't ever spend any time together anymore, she's telling you, there you go. time is her language. Uh-huh. Uh, if your husband says, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it, yeah. he's telling you physical touch is his language. You know, If you go on a business trip and come home and your spouse says, you didn't bring me anything, <laughs> they're telling you There's a gift. gifts is their language. You know, Matt, I found that husbands in particular – tend to get defensive if their wife brings up something, complains yeah. about something. You know, if, if she says we don't spend any time together, he's like to say, what do you mean? We went to dinner Thursday night. Yeah. You know, but, but really, when your spouse, husband, or wife is giving you a complaint about something, they're really telling you what their love language is. And, and what's amazing, too, is, is kind of the opposite of this. So if I go home and I'm, I like physical touch and I want a hug, but my wife has presented a really amazing dinner, she's probably giving me an act of service, um, a dinner. Um, And so I could actually just notice, okay, my wife loves service, so she's serving me. She's trying to love me my way. And when I'm touching my wife, it's not just that I'm a dirty old man. It might mean that I'm actually just loving her my way. So this helps me understand how they're trying to love me. Absolutely. Observe the behavior of your spouse. If they're always doing things for you, as you indicated, then acts of service is probably their language. If they're always touching you and wanting to hug you, then physical touch is likely their language. If they're always giving you verbal compliments, then words of affirmation is likely their language. They're speaking their own language. So that's another clue. Just observe their behavior. And and you may as well, if you're going to be with this person forever, you may as well learn their language. You know, Matt, I really feel that strongly. Uh, a man said to me some time ago, he said, uh, he said, Dr. Chapman, I read your book, and my wife and I took the quiz in the back of the book, and uh, I found out that her love language is acts of service. He said, but I'm just going to tell you and her, if it's going to mean my vacuuming floors and my washing dishes for her to feel loved, you can forget that. Mm. And I said, well, 
That is your choice. If you want to live with a wife who has an empty love tank, that's your choice. I much prefer to live with a wife who has a full love tank. You know, if it's vacuuming floors and washing dishes, I say, give me the vacuum. You yeah. know, it's a small price to pay to live with a happy woman. Mm-hmm. So. Love is is the desire to enhance the life of another person. And if you understand their love language, why would you not want to speak that language so that you're living with a person who feels loved and is secure in that love and will likely reach their potential for good in the world because they feel loved by you? That was Dr. Gary Chapman in an interview that we uh, had with him a few months ago. Again, Gary teaches from the book The Five Love Languages, and honestly, one one of the just perennial favorites, I think, of most marriage counselors, this idea that each and every one of us uh, finds love differently, we seek love differently, and we give love differently, it really would be valuable, I think, for all of us to look at our relationships and ask ourselves, how do we fit into it? How do we... Um, how do we love our partner and how do they want to be loved in the end, too? It might be the great antidote to a lot of the selfishness that we see in the world. Obviously, I'm going to try to love the people around me uh, the way I would love them with words of affirmation, maybe a hug or touch. But in the end, it's also just as important that we start to see how others need to be loved and also that we judge what our partners are doing um, with the idea that they are trying to love us. Uh, again, if somebody wants more touch, they're not doing that just because they're weird or they're just creepy or they're just your, you know, they just, if they want and to give you a hug and that's your spouse, what they may be telling you is that's how they feel close to you. So each and every one of us could probably gather and garner more lessons um, in how to love. You can't be too good at loving another person and being loved in this world. So just a little bit of advice again from the show. Remember, our goal here is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. And we're not going to stop till we can till we can make this world a better place. That is, uh, that's our promise. We will continue the journey. More fun next hour. More insights in how to be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. You know, we're doing it. We're uh, in hour number two of the program. And if you haven't, um, if you haven't been... Uh, able to to listen to us last hour awesome interviews about perfectionism all you got to do is go to uh go download the byu radio app or check us out on apple Podcasts, google play we're everywhere and you can go back and find all of those old interviews today we're going to be talking about uh, the joy of uh of being a hermit yeah (laughs) a kermit not a kermit it's not easy being green no, it's different. That's different. Okay. Uh, we're talking about they've been doing research on early hermits and the life of kind of the hermit. Like the, early history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Hermits. Or, th- those that would just literally go live in the mountains near Sinai or wherever. And yeah. they would 
they they've learned a lot about their lives and how you know there's a lot of interesting information about the joy you can feel as you learn to be alone. Do you ever fantasize about being a hermit? Every day really? of my life. Wow. Some of my, and it sounds horrible, but some of my favorite moments are when I drive to, like, we have a, a little condominium down in St. George, our family does, and we I'll go stay there for a week by myself and write. And I love it. Do you ever write? I write the whole time. Okay. Well, I mean, I write eight, nine hours a day. All right. But I love... Didn't, alone like didn't that. they find you at the end of that week just in the corner and they looked at your typewriter and it said all work and no play make Matt a dull boy? Uh-huh. And I was just shaking in the corner. Hmm. No, I'll go – I go golf. I go swim. I go write. I watch a movie. I watch a movie every night. But it's – but I get stuff done. Yeah, that's the hermit. The hermit in me. Not the Kermit. That's totally different. So we'll be talking about that. Plus, of course, we've got to update you on what they're finding out about the Austin shooting or the Austin bomber uh, who uh, killed himself, uh, blew up a bomb today as the police were closing in on him. So let's get to the headlines, Terry. What uh, what should we know about that? The man suspected of killing two people. He has been identified. We'll skip that part because, you know. Good. He's just a guy. We're not telling his name. He injured four others, terrorized Austin with a series of bombs, may have left more devices throughout the city before killing himself, which is what the police are warning. So if you see anything suspicious, call 911 if you live in the Austin area. Yeah. Any packages, I just wouldn't touch. We don't know where the suspect has been for the last 24 hours. Therefore, we need to remain vigilant to be sure no other packages have been left throughout the community. Uh, they said in early, they had an early morning press conference to address the still, well, he was, uh, has since been identified. Uh, the man was killed when he detonated a bomb inside his own vehicle as police moved in on him. They used, uh, because he shipped it through a FedEx facility, they had the tracking numbers. They went back to the, the store that he took it to, and then they got the security film from video from there, and then through some other areas they found his cell phone and then looked into some google searches and then they became worried because it was probably a lot about bomb making yeah and then they went after to try to find him to talk to him and as they approached he well and and we you made a comment earlier that this unlike the unabomber that took years to figure out and if you've seen the movie boxes and boxes of information that they had to sort through um this is this took a few days with our great advancements and a lot of luck, probably. Probably. We'll find so. out more how they, the investigation happened, which is the interesting side there. Hopefully, he didn't leave anything around the city. Right. We'll find out there. Two students injured and a third, uh, and a third the gunman has died in a shooting in a hallway at the Great Mills High School in Southern Maryland on Tuesday. According to the county sheriff there, a school resource officer shot the student gunman who fired back with a handgun, the sheriff said. The school resource officer was not injured. The two students who were injured, a 14-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl, were being treated at local hospitals. So he was able to – the resource officer got in there and stopped the situation before it turned worse. Yeah. Uh, This was in the Associated Press yesterday. As schools around the U.S. look for ways to impose tougher security measures, they don't have to look further than urban districts such as Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York – then installed metal detectors and other security in the 80s and 90s to combat gang and drug violence. Security experts believe these measures may have made urban districts less prone to mass shootings, which have mostly occurred in suburban and rural districts. Officials in some suburban and rural school districts are now considering detectors as they rethink their security plans after the shooting in Florida. Mm. 
So we do have to try to make it, it feels like a prison. But you have to do that to keep uh, a track on what's coming in and out of the building. By the way, that was a resource officer. So that was a police officer in the school. That wasn't a teacher no. teaching resource. No. That then they call it, they call them resource officers, but they are a uniformed police officer in the school. Yeah. Mine was usually wearing some sort of polo shirt and khakis because, yeah. you know, he's just kind of hanging out. But, you know, he was armed and everyone knew it. And mine, when he walked into the class and pointed at you, you're like, oh, no, what did I do? Mine um, actually ended up, I think, getting in trouble later in a oh. story with a nurse at the U.S. <laughs> at the hospital that made national headlines. Really? I just found out. You he think that's the same guy? Source officer. Wow. <laughs> Crazy time. In other news, uh, Axios.com reports that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg plans to speak out in the next 24 hours or so okay. on the data harvesting revelations that have hammered his uh, company's stock price and lost him like billions of dollars. Oh. Uh, it's also inflamed lawmakers in D.C. and Europe. Both are demanding that he show up and testify to explain what's your company doing when it comes to private data? How is it manipulating uh, elections around the globe, not just here, but in Europe and other places? Yeah. And there's video now of the CEO of the, that uh, the parent company, the Cambridge Analytica, that we've heard so much about in the last 48 hours, the parent company CEO has been uh, fired. Yeah. And that comes from uh, because there's undercover video with a British TV station where he's saying they're, they had fake IDs. They basically worked uh, blackmail schemes on other politicians in other countries to kind of tilt elections certain ways. And I mean, that's a big deal. And a, a company like Facebook allowed their data them to have their data right now they've acted recently as if like oh we're shocked to find this out but they've known for several years and didn't do anything about it zuckerberg was initially more focused on how to fix the problems than on what to say but that left a vacuum that provoked merciless coverage increasing uh increasing lawmakers suspicions and even left some employees demoralized zuckerberg his remarks will be aimed at rebuilding trust that he wanted to say something meaningful rather than just rushing out and trying to fight off the news, basically. The problem is that Facebook has long known about these personal data vulnerabilities. And the commercial use of your personal data in ways you may not knowingly approve has always been part of their business model. Yeah. You, you are the product when you're on Facebook. It's not what's Don't on there. It's pretend you. pretend like it's about your posts. It's no. about the data that you're giving them. The board of Cambridge Analytica, uh, the, they fired the CEO, Alexander Nix, with immediate effect pending a full independent investigation. According to a statement from the company, Nix was caught on camera boasting to an undercover reporter about his company's ability to blackmail politicians. <laughs> so the, the story keeps rolling out. Now, the problem is they had an all-hands meeting yesterday. All or, hands or they the- had an employee meeting I'm not, at Facebook. I'm yeah. not sure if it's all hands, but an employee meeting. And the, the top two people are Zuckerberg's, the, CE, the CEO, and the COO is Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah. Both of them were not there. Those are the two faces of the company, and they weren't there to answer questions. Other people were there to answer questions, but the employees are looking around like, well, so the people in charge aren't here? That's why now we know we need to have a meeting. That's yeah. why he's coming out to have his meeting. Now, finally, there was a, a new book that's out from a guy named Mark Penn. He's the chairman of the Harris Poll, which is a polling yeah. data company. He wrote a book called The Number of No PCers or people who only access the Internet through mobile devices, is steadily rising, they say. By 2020, uh, eMarketer predicts that 41.6 million Americans will only be using mobile devices for Internet access. They will not have 41%? 41 million Americans. Oh, okay. 
right, which is up 34% since last year. Yeah. A new class of high-end Luddites, as the yeah. book says, is retreating from ca- the chaos of Internet-connected society through flip phones. So you got Scarlett Johansson, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Rihanna, and even Warren Buffett have all ditched smartphones at some point in the last few years for flip phones. Really? Just simplifying things. Just a phone. A rise of intelligent TV viewing has skyrocketed with appointment programming stemming from uh, big streaming providers, whereas the concept of binge-watching premium programs was passe 10 years ago. It's now the new normal, and Internet uh, economics have followed uh, Netflix. This, this number here, Netflix generates roughly 40% of all Internet traffic. Man, 40%. Of the global internet traffic is Netflix. Un- Do you remember Netflix back when they used to just send you a CD? I still get those or in the a mail. DVD, yeah. yeah. Man, has it grown up. 40%. That's pretty cool. I mean, if you're into Netflix. And by the way, 10% of that 41% is mine. Not to brag. Up next, we're going to talk about what the joyous solitude of early hermits can teach us about being alone. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, social media shows us smiling faces surrounded by happy people in beautiful locations. But we all know that it's just a moment in time and not necessarily a state of living. The time in between those when those pictures were taken and posted can be filled with loneliness. And uh, for many, this loneliness is uh, is overwhelming, especially as as we get older, elderly Americans suffer more and more loneliness, according to research studies, especially in times of winter. But this doesn't have to be the case. Joining us to talk about um, the power of being alone, the power of solitude, Dr. Kim haynes Eitzen argues in her article that one isn't always the loneliest number. And she's going to show us how through history um, there's great examples of how to gain power in solitude. Um, Dr. Kim haynes Eitzen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, you have, a, you have a history. You've studied ancient Mediterranean religions with specialty in early Christianity, early Judaism. Talk about—I uh, mean, there's a history of, of nomads or of, of hermits, people that would, that would live alone and, and found incredible peace in being alone. That's right. Um, I mean, we have both—we have abundant evidence of—, of certainly people living on the move, the nomadic life, but we also have um, stories about individuals who decided for various reasons to leave their city urban context and go out into the wilderness. Um, And I work especially on this movement um, monasticism in early Christianity, and one aspect of that is this decision that some individuals made, um, say, in Egypt or Sinai, um, to leave their urban center um, and go out into the desert. Hmm. And they did it. They did it, I guess, for spiritual reasons. I mean, there are a lot of examples of uh, in Scripture that, like, the mountains were the temples where they would go commune with their God, or the deserts. It was a spiritual journey for many. It was certainly a spiritual journey. Um, 
And in many ways, the stories are crafted after some of the biblical stories about going into the wilderness. Um, so the, the wilderness has this sort of multiple valences to it. On the one hand, it's this place that you go and you are tempted, you're tried, you're put to the test. And on the other hand, it's a place where you have revelation. Um, you discover things, you might have visions. So it, it's, it's a very interesting um, it's a, an interesting landscape, an interesting place. We're looking at this kind of paradox of place. Do we live in a time, um, we now find out more and more, in fact, BYU did a study about loneliness, that, you know, being lonely or feeling lonely is actually, you know, it's, it's as, as harmful to your health as smoking many packs of cigarettes a day. It, it, we're finding that it has some impact on us, but I'm assuming that that's people that are lonely maybe without a purpose or without going through uh, a spiritual journey like we saw with some of these these uh, these examples you're giving us. Yes, well, I think I mean I'm not I'm not a modern psychologist but or a doctor, but I've read these some of these studies and I think that loneliness certainly is has negative health effects. Um, what's not clear to me though is whether you one one can be lonely in the middle of many people, in the midst right. of many people. So it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as solitude. That's true. Um, and I think we all feel this pull between this hyper-connected world that we live in and a, a, sometimes a, a yearning for some solitude. Um, and how does one find that aloneness in a good way? But artists and composers, um, religious hermits, have valued that experience of solitude. Yes. Talk about um, what you learned in your research about what specifically what what specifically creates the the more peaceful moments of of being alone or solitude. What what is made up in that time that makes it special? Well, um, that's a good a good question. I think for the for the stories that I study um, about these hermits, one of the aspects that I'm most interested in is their um, their references to sounds, and there is a curious kind of tension in um, stories about the desert. Some some say, well, the desert is a place where you it's silent. So you leave this noisy city, you go to the desert, and it's silent, it's quiet. That's how you'll have inner peace. On the other hand, the desert is often talked about as the place of howling wilderness and the terrible winds. Um, so I have one story I'm working on by a bishop from Alexandria in Egypt. The bishop's name is Athanasius, and he writes the story of this man named Antony, a young man who leaves the city goes into the desert, hoping, I mean, really to, to, to find this kind of freedom from disturbances, freedom from distractions. It, some of the language almost sounds like our contemporary world. And when he goes out to the desert, he encounters all sorts of noises, some of them made by demons. Lots of stories about demons making noises out there. And they crush in on him, they beat in on him, but there's there's a real interesting kind of tension between this hyper-distracted, noisy world and this search for a quiet that's not just external, 
but also internal, a kind of quietude or stillness. Mm. That's powerful. That, yeah, the and and especially to create like a balance between these these quiets. Right, right. I think that's part of what they were looking for. And as this tradition um, of monasticism develops, we have growing texts that really focus on how one develops that sense of inner quietude even in the midst of distraction. Mm. Can one cultivate it? They, the language is very much about growing. Can you grow within yourself this inner sense of quiet? Boy, but how appropriate would that be for today when we have so much distraction, so much noise? I mean, I guess this is why we always see those stories of you know, the Buddhist monk at the top of a mountain, sitting alone only in his quietude. That's that's right. I think that it's still a contemporary, and there's, even in our country, this country, there's a growing movement to cultivate mindfulness, quiet, meditation. Um, it becomes in some ways more urgent, more necessary, as the world gets increasingly noisy. Do you were there things that you could see in their writings of these hermits or in this bishop's writing that would give us insight into how to create the quietude? What are some of the what are some of the things we we must do to actually sit in the silence and and uh and let it kind of vibrate in us? Well, one of the things they talk about is um I mean, we might put it in in our our language today, we might say, have a mantra. One of the, the things that they talk about is memorize some scripture and repeat repeat that scripture, huh. or memorize the Jesus prayer. Um, have words under your breath. You may not be necessarily speaking it out with a full voice, but cultivate a practice. It's a, it's a kind of training your mind. Um, and cultivating this stillness with a repetition of words. So the books of uh, the Psalms were used frequently um, for this kind of practice. And it's, it's almost like to do so, you're using your mind to hold a thought uh, or an idea while you're able to, to not necessarily fixate on the idea, but allow space to have other thoughts come in. That's right. That's right. And there's, there's, one other, there's another piece to this. In the stories that we have, what often seems to have happened, and again, we don't know numbers, how many people actually undertook to show their, their Christian faith by going into a life of solitude, but um, one of the things that happens in these stories is that sometimes these individuals, these hermits, become quote-unquote, famous, and they attract visitors. And so the, the other tension going on in, this, in these stories is that they've gone out to the desert for some solitude, for quiet, um, and people start flocking to them hmm. or to, to get prayer from them or to just to see them. Um, and so the story of Antony... As Athanasius tells it, he has to keep going farther and farther and farther into the deeper recesses of the desert. <laughs> he just really wants to get away. That's right. 
He really wants to get away. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Kim Haynes-Eitzen, who uh, is a professor of ancient Mediterranean religions with a specialty in early Christianity, early Judaism, and uh, uh, religion in late antiquity at Cornell University. She's teaching us about the joyous solitude that she learned about from the early hermits. And they might be teaching us how to to manage being alone in life. Um, one of the things I noticed that's interesting that as these as these uh, hermits would be able to find more peace and be more at one with this this higher power in life, it attracted people to them. And yet their their ultimate objective wasn't necessarily it wasn't relational at all. It was it was very almost individual. It, well, I guess it was communing with a higher power. Yes. Um, because they yeah. kept moving away. As, pe- as people would come, um, they would move away. We, it seems like we live in a society today where we are more relational in a way. We, we keep, through social media and all sorts of strategies that we now have, um, yes, we keep circling back to one another in, in, in various, various means. Um, so I think on one level it's different, but on, in another way it's fairly similar, because I think what's coming out in these stories is a problem that we all face today, which is how much, to, how much togetherness, how much aloneness, and um, finding that kind of balance between enough time to reconnect with oneself and enough time to feel connected to others. Hmm. It's true because it's there's there are many of us that can't be alone. We don't right. want to be alone with our thoughts, with our minds, and um, with that higher power. That's interesting. Did, yes, I, I think it can be. I mean, the stories um, do talk about terror. You know that it's not all peace and. Uh, it's not something where the story is crafted and it looks like this figure goes to the desert, instantly finds peace. He, he goes to the desert the way the story is told, and he does battle with his thoughts, with his, you know, his inner demons, with external forces. He's doing battle. Um, it's, it's partly a testing and a trying, and it, it, it takes the way the story told it takes a long time to cultivate a sense of quietude there's there's i think for many of us there's a terror in being completely alone mm. were were these hermits at a certain age um it, it is interesting in our society where as seniors age they tend to have more time alone but that aloneness for many of them is is terrifying like we're hearing about here um, but were these hermits that you studied younger than seniors, or were they doing this older in age? Well, all we really have to go on in this case um, are these narratives that depict them as as young. Um, Antony is probably in this story roughly the age of twenty. Um, the way the story is told, his parents have both died. He has a younger sister. And he begins to feel burdened by all the pressures upon him and decides he sells everything. Uh, part of the story is he's going past the church, um, and he hears the story, um, uh, the passage from the Gospel of Matthew, if you would be perfect, go sell everything you mm-hmm. own and give to the poor. And he takes that literally. He 
sells everything. He gives, he prepares some sort of fund or something for his sister, the way the story is told, and then he begins to head in increasing stages farther and farther away from the city, from the village. And yes, so he's, he's younger. I think in many cases it's hard for us to tell, although when we look at some of the sources for monasticism in the 4th and 5th century, we, it's a mix of ages. We certainly have people who are older, who have had families, who decide to take up a monastic life later in life, they are joining a monastery in that case, so that is a, another kind of community. Um, they, I, they, they don't quite fit into the category of hermit. We know a little bit about children at these monasteries. Um, so it's a real mixture of ages, I think. That is fascinating. Is it, um, as you look at it, again, you could go to a monastery with... Uh, with monks that have taken a vow of silence, and they can all be sitting in the same space but seeking quietude. That's right. Yes, they can be. They can take a vow of silence, and to to speak would itself be a form of distraction, and so it, it disrupts this cultivation cultivation of um, quietude. Wow. What what else have you learned? I can only imagine just some of the things you've forgotten, Kim, um, that the rest of us would benefit from living in such a chaotic world. What other things do you see um, that we maybe want to learn from these past hermits? I think one other important, one thing I've learned, um, and a, a sort of thread running throughout my research right now is about paying attention. And I think one of the ways they, they talk about this in terms of quietude, but they also talk about it in terms of a kind of attention. What holds our attention? Um, I, I'm particularly interested in how our acoustical environment, our, the sounds around us, whether that's people speaking or the sounds of, sil- uh, of sirens or the sounds of birds and water, how those kinds of sounds around us Um, that we live in or within shape a sense of not only where we are, but who we are in that place. And I I found by working on these texts and looking at the way they talk about the sonic environment um, in which these monks were living, even though we're really only getting hints here and there of that kind of environment, um, I think it says something about how we we pay attention. where we put our minds and how we attend to where we are and where we are in any given moment. Which is it's so important of a, of a discussion and probably investigation as so many people today are struggling with attentiveness and attention disorders. Yes. Well, we, we, we all have so many. For a while, it seemed like we were all supposed to be multitasking, but now they're telling us multitasking is not good for us. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know we have to now unlearn multitasking and and rethink what where we put our energies um, and how many things we're trying to do all at the same time. It's um, was it I, I guess each of the stories you've studied just because of your focus of study was it it was all a spiritual seemingly journey. Were, were there any hermits that you saw that were just maybe 
alone because of introversion. They just didn't they weren't seeking, you know, transcendence or uh a higher state of being. They just didn't like beings. Yes, that's it's tricky because of the kinds of sources that we are u- that I'm using. They are I mean they are stories and it's very hard to tell to separate out the way the story is told from the what actually happened on the ground. So the stories are told in such a way to highlight, to amplify the religious dimensions, the spiritual dimensions to the story, and it would be hard to sort of say historically, well, maybe Antony really just left because he was just sick and tired of the city. You know, he wanted just a break from everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say what his motives were or the motives of other kind of solitaries. And the other thing I would say is that sometimes it's very often hard, actually, to recover archaeologically good evidence of hermits because they sometimes used caves. Mm. Sometimes there wouldn't be much. There's not a strong record. Most of our archaeological record of hermits comes from caves or small structures that are situated near monasteries. So the story says he's by himself, but then in terms of the material remains, it looks like there was still there in monasticism this combination of a hermit, but also connected to a communal monastery. Sure. Yeah. Um, Kim, as we as we wrap up, what's the one thing that we could take away from your research um, that would help us find this joyous solitude in our lives today? When we have that moment of time when we could be alone, is there one thing that you recommend we just learn to do? Well, the first thing I would say is if we could learn to breathe. Um, when these monastic texts talk about cultivating this quietude, they used word they use words like inspiration and um, they talk about breathing and they talk about prayer as a kind of breath and having you know something on your lips that you could utter that's helpful to you. So I think even the ability this I think is sometimes very, very difficult to reconnect with one's own cycle of breathing. Um, is a very useful way to start. Powerful, powerful stuff. Dr. Kim Haynes-Eitzen, thank you so much for your time and your great work there at Cornell University, doing what you can, it looks like, to help us understand uh, our history in order to to better live in our present. It's not easy finding solitude and uh, quietude amidst this world that we live in, but um, there are ways, breathing, praying, uh, meditating, recitation, powerful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be doing a little Coach's Corner, helping us all uh, to find the peace in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball, friends. You know, um, you wonder how much of our anxiety in today's day and age is coming from our inability to just sit alone. Think about the hermits that uh, Dr. Kim was talking about there that 
they didn't have books to go sit alone and read, so they weren't reading. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't on the internet. They probably weren't listening to a podcast, right? They weren't just cooking up dinner all day. They they weren't decorating their house. They weren't driving their automobile. They literally would just go sit and think and experience life and watch a bird and chase a grasshopper and watch the ants build their little home and be influenced. And their thoughts, think of how many of your thoughts today aren't even original, right? I mean, your thoughts are coming from someone else's thoughts or something you just heard on the news, or very few of our thoughts are actually original. But back then, they could create some original thoughts in their mind, a thought that didn't come from somebody else. Do you create that space in your life to actually think or to be inspired, to let spirit into you? Inspiration, uh, isn't it interesting how breath and inspiration um, are ways of getting this spirit into you? And do you have the space, do you have the time to actually sit? And do you not have it because you're just so busy, or do you not have it because deep down you dread the idea of having to be alone with your thoughts? Because, what would we learn? So scary. So think about it. How, how are you at being able to get inside of yourself and truly find peace? Um, are you able to truly go connect into a higher power? Do you have the ability to actually attend and pay attention to something? Um, and if not, are there ways in your life, that, are there certain things that you already know you should be maybe turning off, turning down, turning away from? or turning toward that might help you uh, create this quietude. We probably need more of it, don't you think? We need more of it. And again, we will always have an excuse for why we don't, because this world is always going to have the noise. But if the majority of what we have in life is noise, um, then all we have in our life is confusion, chaos, so if we need clarity, we, we probably need to create some space for it. There might be some ways to do that, simply even driving in your car. You don't have to make use of every second of your life by more education, more learning, more podcast, even more radio listening. Maybe it is time to turn the radio off. Maybe it is time to quit taking on those news feeds. Maybe it is time to look at social media and, and only once a week. And only for a short period of time, making some choices again. You don't need to be um, you don't need to be a hermit, but you you also probably wouldn't be hurt right now by being a hermit and seeing if you couldn't let some spirit in. So you have some solitude, some true joy um, in your heart, in your life as you go through it. So interesting. Another uh, lesson brought to you by the hermits of the world. <laughs> Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be revisiting uh, more of an interview I did with Gary Chapman, who's the author of the book, The Five Love Languages. BYU Radio. And Hollywood has picked this up where, uh, you know, they have uh, new potential partners say to each other, you complete me. 
Well, the fact is we never complete each other. It's an illusion, I think. Um, but the idea of completion is to put a pressure on one's partner that is probably unbearable. Join us on Thinking Aloud to sit in on conversations with some of the world's best scholars, artists, and intellectuals at 1 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on BYU Radio. Welcome to the Wheatley Minute, featuring ideas that sustain core institutions, presented by the Wheatley Institution at BYU. Here is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University, Mark Lynch. When you study the Middle East, when you work in the Middle East, you kind of get used to things being stuck. Nothing ever changes. You have the same issues again and again and again. How long has the peace process been going on with no change? How long have we been negotiating over the Iranian nuclear program? And we all fall into these routines of analysis and routines of life where we come to expect and to believe that change is just not possible that things are as they are and you can't escape it. And when Hosni Mubarak stepped down, suddenly there was this moment where we dared to believe that things could be different. And when I say we, I mean that in the global we. To listen to the full lecture or to learn more about the work of the Wheatley Institution, go to wheatley.byu.edu. And listen to the Wheatley Forum addresses Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Eastern here on BYU Radio. Welcome back. You know, today on our shows, um, we've been revisiting some interviews that I did with Dr. Gary Chapman, who is a nationwide uh, marriage counselor, a pastor, a seasoned writer. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate. His book has been read by millions uh, throughout the, the country and the world. And um, I, I can't tell you how many people I have talked to that that are living day in and day out by his uh, five love languages uh, concept. In our conversation that I've I've had with him, I I asked him um, what what he would say to people who who uh, who you know are in a marriage and in a relationship, and they're struggling with the idea that they believe that love shouldn't be this hard. And a part of that is because when we're in love, we go through that phase when we're in love, all of this just kind of flows out of us. I mean, we, we're just pushed along by the euphoric feelings of, of that in love experience, and we're doing all kinds of things that really aren't natural for us. But the lifespan of that in love experience is about two years, average yeah. two years. We come down off the high, and that's when love has to be intentional. That's when love has to be learned. And if you don't learn to speak your spouse's language, the emotional love tank does get empty. And you begin to feel like, they don't love me. They Mm. wish they weren't married to me. And life begins to look dark. But that doesn't have to happen. If you understand the love languages and you speak each other's language, when you come down off the high, you still feel love. Because you're receiving love in a language that's meaningful to you. And you're losing yourself. I mean, that's one of the ideas is that I guess people think that they're going to find the perfect mate instead of being the perfect mate. You know, instead of loving my partner, her way actually changes me. It makes me more charitable. Yeah, exactly. And you know what happens so many times, and this is what's tragic about it, is that people come down off that high, their differences emerge, They don't know how to love each other. They don't know anything about the love languages. And so they begin to argue about their differences, and they say nasty and hurtful things to each other. And before long, they're asking, why did we get married? Mm. We don't even like each other. And then you know what happens. They get get what I call the tingles. (laughs) They get the tingles for somebody else. 
and that whole in love thing starts over with somebody else and so they leave their spouse and go off with the second person and we all know that the divorce rate in second marriages is higher than the divorce rate in first marriages right so the answer is not following the tingles from person to person. The answer is learning how to love the person to whom you're now married. And you almost have to lose yourself, don't you, to to find yourself. It's the old scripture. You got to lose your need to have it have to have your love your way per se, and instead you're just going to love your partner their way. And it seems like in a in a in a way you end up becoming more well-rounded in love. Well, I think so. You know, love essentially is an attitude of giving. It's the desire to enhance the life of your spouse. And we all know that a person who is a loving person is going to enjoy life far more than a person who is self-centered. In fact, self-centered people will never have good marriages. But people who choose to put others above themselves and reach out to love other people are not only going to enhance those people's lives, but they're going to enjoy life. Right. More. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's the thing that love, love stimulates love. And when I choose to speak my wife's love language, it touches her at a deep emotional level, and she's far more likely to reciprocate and, and reach out to love me in my language. Uh, Gary, how long have you been married? 45-plus years? You know, it's 53 now. Is it really? That is so that yeah. old. Oh. I, got married when, I got married when I was nine, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Those were the good old days, weren't they, Gary? <laughs> oh, man. That's you beautiful, know, man, though. Uh, to be very honest with you, uh, Carolyn and I had real struggles in the early years of our marriage. I mean severe struggles. Even though we, re- we agreed on religious matters, we believed God was important and all of that, but we had tremendous struggles in our marriage, and maybe that that's why I'm so empathetic with people who sit in my office and I know sit in your office and yeah. say, we just don't see any hope. We just feel like it's, it's too many things have happened, you know, because I, I was there in those early yeah. years. And, you know, I, I thought I'd married the wrong person. I thought it's never going to work out. It's never going to get any better. Uh, but, you know, God helped us. And I have so much hope for other people. That, that their lives can be changed, and, and a lot of it centers around what we're talking about today, mm. and that is the choice to love the other person and then learn how to do it. And I love, I love that you're so real about that, because that's to, to know that you went through that, Gary, makes this even more credible, right? Because it was, it's learned. It's not just, this isn't yeah. hype, this isn't theory, this is real life. What percentage of this is an interesting statistic if if it's still the one I think it is what percentage of the couples that you see share the same love language Not very many uh typically a husband and wife will have a different love language now, yeah. couples some couples do have the same love language uh but if they have the same love language uh they'll have different dialects mm-hmm. within yeah. that language yeah. that they prefer but um, uh, most of the time, husbands and wives will have a different love language. Which is interesting because I think we assume when we're first all charged up chemically, we love everything. Every yeah. language is firing. Um, yeah. And we kind of settle into the ones that are more ours, right? I think so. And, you know, what I'm saying in the book is, first of all, you learn, you discover their primary love language. Then you give heavy doses of that then you can sprinkle in the other four mm-hmm. for extra credit. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because any of us appreciate any of those five, but one of them is going to speak more deeply to us than the other four. Mm. How how were you impacted um, by? I mean, you also have degrees in you know religion, and you're a very you're a very you're a pastor. You're a very spiritual man. How did how did the spiritual side of your life impact a lot of your writing and work? 
You know, I think uh, one of the big things was that's what gave us the breakthrough in our marriage. Uh, you know, I was actually studying to be a pastor when I was going through all these troubles mm. in my marriage. And I remember the day I finally said to God, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I know to do. It's not getting any better. And as soon as I said that, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his followers. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I just heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You do not have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, Matt. You know, and I just said, because I, I remember what Jesus said when he stood up. He said, I'm your leader, and in my kingdom, this is the way you lead. Hmm. The leader serves. Right. And I knew that was not my attitude. You know, my attitude in the early days was something like, look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. <laughs> if you'll just be quiet. Right. <laughs> so and I blamed her, you yeah. know. But that day I got a different message, and I just said to God, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study in Greek and Hebrew and theology, I have missed the whole point. Mm. And then I then I said, please give me the attitude of Christ. Well, and that and is so basic, isn't it? It's just it is, it's know? a ba- it's it just really the attitude is. of charity of love. Yeah, and you know, it, it, looking back on it, it was the greatest prayer I ever prayed regarding my marriage because really God changed my heart huh. and He gave me a desire to serve my wife. I didn't know anything about love languages at that point, but I started asking her three questions: uh, Honey, what could I do to help you? Second, how could I make your life easier? And the third question, how could I be a better husband? Mm. And she started giving me answers. And looking back on it, she was really teaching me how to love her. You know, I didn't realize all that. But sure. my attitude was changed. I wanted to help her. And, and, and she began to answer those questions for me. And in about three months, it didn't turn around overnight, but in about three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. Isn't that amazing? When you, get, when you get two people who are reaching out, trying to serve each other, and wanting to learn how to serve each other, uh, you're going to have a great marriage. And that's, that's, I think that's what God intended marriage to be. How, so what can I do to help? How can I make it easier for you? Mm-hmm. And how can I be a better husband? Right. Yeah. And, and, no, the, and, then, and then listen, right? And then listen. And then listen, yeah. Now take, the, take the information they give you and answer to that, and let that be a guideline on how you invest your time and energy in their lives. And, uh, you know, love stimulates love, as I said earlier. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when a husband and wife are reaching out like that to each other, uh, you both then are free, free to, to use your talents and abilities to bless the world. And, uh, you know, I so wish, Matt, that we could rediscover that uh, in, in the church, that, that we're here to love other people. And when we do, we're enriching the world. Yeah. And it should start in the marriage, you know, and then it flows to the children and then beyond the family. The marriage is a, it's a different relationship, isn't it, than any other that we have? Because they're our peer, they're our equal, and yeah. they know everything about us. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 designed of God, I think, to be an intimate relationship. You remember in the in the book of Genesis where God said it's not good for man to be alone. You bet, you bet. You know, isolated, cut off, and God's answer was the creation of Eve, the institution of marriage, and then it says they will become one flesh. Yeah. It's the opposite of being alone. It's deep, deep intimacy. You know, it's it's a deep connection between the two of you. And when you learn how to share life like that, and, and love and support and encourage each other, uh, I think you experience what God designed marriage to be in the first place. 
That was Dr. Gary Chapman, author of the book The Five Love Languages, uh, in an interview that we we had with him, I think it was probably about a year ago, and we're revisiting those learnings. You know, one of the things, too, to remember that, um, that that's kind of fun when you listen to a guy like Gary talk, he, he sees such a deeper purpose in the marriage than just, you know, some merging of two human lives, he sees that there's this other higher purpose of it, this connection to a higher power, this connection to um, something bigger. And so one of the things I've actually been doing more of recently and have found a lot of uh, insight in doing it is studying other people's marriages. It might be good for all of us to go start finding people in our lives that we think have great marriages And uh, no matter where you are in the marriage world, go start asking them questions about what their advice would be. What did they notice? Start learning about the impact that their marriage uh, um, has had uh, and what marriages influence them. Start learning what good marriage looks like because a lot of us, we just don't have those models maybe in our immediate circle, but they might be somewhere in our family line or, you know, in our church, in our congregation. Just a little uh, fun advice. Uh, Appreciate your time. Again, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. Uh, Again, at uh, extensive research, a lot of time, these two guys, they stay up all night just to bring you the latest and the greatest. And then they sleep through the entire show. Sometimes I can only get around to getting the latest, but not the greatest. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of where the MT news comes in. Yeah. A lot of your, just the latest news, not necessarily the greatest. Hey, today we're going to be talking about how to be a careful and caring confidant. So if somebody needs help and wants to confide in you, there's some things you can learn, and also how to find somebody you should confide in when, it's, when it comes to your marriage issues. You probably ought not just be posting stuff, right? You probably ought to be careful who you're talking to. Maybe you shouldn't just get your latest advice on whether you should stay in a marriage or not from somebody that just divorced in your office. Be careful, right? And uh, we'll be talking to Brian Willoughby about relationships and how to, how to find you know, and get help how to confide in people, how to decide who to confide in, and how to be that great confidant. So um, that's super important, plus, of course, other headlines and news. In fact, let's get to Terry. Terry, what information should we be focused on today? The suspect in the serial bombings that terrorized Austin this month was killed early this morning in a standoff with police along Interstate 35 in Round Rock, Texas, just north of Austin. Police report the suspect detonated an explosive device and possibly shot himself, according to CBS News. A high-ranking law enforcement official tells the Austin American Statesman that authorities identified the suspect within the past 24 hours, thanks mostly to evidence gathered from when the suspect shipped explosives, an explosive package from a FedEx store in southwest Austin. They had surveillance. Wow. That led to a cell phone, which led to some Google searches, and then they were able to track him and found where he was. I mean, they they were on it fast enough to get a warrant to do a Google search. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. 
but uh, they're not sure where he's been in the last 24 hours, so they're urging caution. If you see anything suspicious, call the authorities because, you know, you don't know where you he's been. You never know, he's been right. Doing. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is probing Facebook over whether it violated terms of a 2011 consent decree over its use of personal data, according to a person familiar with the matter. As uh, Bloomberg reports, the investigation involves whether it allowed Cambridge Analytica to receive some user data in violation of its policies. The uh, said the person who asked not to be identified, as they always tried to do. Representatives from Facebook are testifying in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee today. Reports have Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg preparing a statement on events over the last few days. So far, he has been silent on the issue. On Tuesday, there was an employee meeting at uh, Facebook so concerns could be addressed. And Zuckerberg and the uh, COO, COO Sheryl Sandberg, the two most public figures from yeah. Facebook, were both not in attendance at the meeting, which <laughs> raised some eyebrows. Now, it was one of those meetings. And they're like, whoa. I'm not going to that one. So we're in combat mode, and the two leaders are not here. That doesn't look good. No. So. No. We'll see what, what they come up with the statement. I imagine it'll be a Facebook post or video, as it has been in the past. Yeah. It'll be staged. It'll look stiff and not be received well. Highly produced. Just a prediction. Senator John McCain of Arizona on Tuesday said President Trump insulted every Russian citizen when he congratulated the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, on his re-election to another six-year term. An American president does not lead the free world by congratulating dictators on winning sham elections, McCain said. <laughs> He's the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, if you yeah. forgot. And by doing so, with Vladimir Putin, President Trump insulted every Russian citizen who was denied the right to vote in a free and fair election to determine the future of their country, as he went on. The two leaders, uh, President Trump and President Putin, spoke by phone earlier Tuesday, the White House said, and Trump congratulated Putin for winning re-election. Trump uh. told reporters that he and Putin would meet in the not-too-distant future. When asked at Tuesday's press briefing whether Russian elections were free and fair, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said, look, we don't get to dictate how, how other countries operate. Well, it sounds like they don't even get to dictate how our country operates because Russians dictating that. Well, that's other stories about, yeah. Yeah. Facebook. Interesting. But uh, many people are upset that you're, he's celebrating Putin's victory when yes. it, Putin's victory, many believe, was, a you know. A sham, yeah. as Senator McCain said. It's a sham. Now the question is, the White House is concerned that there was a leak because the president having a phone call with another world leader isn't necessarily something they, they talk about a lot. Right. He mentioned it, but it, I mean, the details of it came out saying that his uh, national security advisor was telling him, do not congratulate him. And it was written in all caps on some documents in front of the president, but he went ahead and congratulated Putin anyways. Yeah. And that information is like now somebody in the inner circle is leaking to the media. Somebody on the on the and on the inside, and which is weird because half the people on the inside are now on a list of people that could be on the outside very quickly. Yes. So maybe it's one of those. Possibly. You put me on that list, then well, I'm going to start leaking. We'll see. More than thirty thousand people have been urged to flee Southern California. Some areas brace for eight uh, eight months of annual rainfall in just thirty six hours. Oh no! Officials have ordered mandatory evacuations in Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Los Angeles counties, with heavy rains expected to hit today through Thursday. The oh, storm boy. will directly hit areas previously ravaged by the Thomas Fire, increasing the risk of flash flooding, mudslides, and significant debris flow. That's a concern when you put the heaviest rainfall anywhere in the United States and put it right over Southern California, directly over burn scars, says a uh -huh. CNN meteorologist. Some of the areas could see six inches of rainfall over 36 hours. 
That's six to eight months of rainfall for the area in a, a short period of time. Uh, meanwhile, the northeast is bracing for its fourth nor'easter in a month. The record snowfall expected. It's snowing right now. I, I saw a uh, CNN reporter making a snowman on the National Mall, and he's asking people to name the snowman, so there's something you can kill some time with this morning. <laughs> 70 million people are under winter storm watch with uh, closing closed schools, thousands of fl- uh, flights canceled Wednesday, so just more weather-related problems. Wow, though. I mean, that's the last thing they need. In Southern California. And by the way, isn't it ironic? They've needed water forever. Yeah. And now... They're uh, getting all of it all at once. Which and means right after the fire scars. Most of it just runs off into the ocean because they can't hold oh, it off. poor California. Finally, uh, as the title of this is, it says, Treacherous Times for Terrestrial Radio. Uh-oh. Terrestrial radio is the radio when you get in your car... Turn on the radio. And you have to crank that that lever yeah. to keep it going. It's just local radio. iHeartMedia, the country's biggest radio broadcaster, filed for bankruptcy protection last week. Oh, no. The news came just a month after rival Cumulus Media filed for bankruptcy. Right. So they're both the, the two biggest radio groups in the entire country, billion-dollar companies filing for bankruptcy because they can't handle the amount of debt they have. Dropping Ooh. like flies. A whopping, and then then there's some statistics. A whopping 93% of adults over the age of 18 tune into AM or FM radio each week, according to Nielsen's market 90%? research. 93%? 93% of adults at so some what's, point. So what's going on here? It says listening to radio compromised 17% of American adults' media diet. Wow. Hmm. It says and that, that's compared to 41% of time devoted to TV, 23% using an app or the web on a smartphone. But like TV, that audience is aging out. Teens listening to terrestrial radio has fallen about 50% over the last 10 years. No, yeah, my kids don't turn it on. They just turn their own music on. Hmm. Spotify, Pandora, SoundCloud, they're using everything but the radio. So it's it's strange. You have revenue, you have an audience, because it says 93% yeah. of adults listen at least once a week. But that's us old people. But, you know, people with money, yeah. People yeah. That, that have uh, the ability to go buy furniture or whatever is being advertised, but it doesn't seem to translate that way coming back for money. Oh, boy. <sighs> and this is just before uh, we're going to be switching over to FM. Yeah, we'll have a FM die. We'll have a FM station. We'll be playing from in Salt Lake City area. Plus, I think soon to be other areas. So, boy, oh boy, maybe that's the new model. Maybe BYU Broadcasting is going to take over terrestrial radio. Wow, there you go. I know people in the building that probably want that to happen. That's true. <laughs> that's great for for many. And hey, if you're a podcaster, maybe that's the future. Plus podcasting. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Wow, so much going on, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking with Dr. Brian Willoughby about how uh, to be careful in, in confiding in your relationship uh, in with others and how to be a caring confidant. Great insights straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the studio with us is Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. And uh, he's been studying pretty much everything. He's, he uh, has expertise in the areas of dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, and marital attitudes and beliefs. Today he's talking to us about uh, 
where you go get advice and and how to give advice to somebody in their marriage. It's a some of us we we need to confide in somebody, and some of us are the confidants. But you got to be careful giving marriage advice. Yes, very careful. And why? Explain why what you see as a professor and a researcher that. What's the problem? We're all just giving our advice. Right. So the biggest problem with this is actually the why we go get advice from other people. Usually it has very little to do with advice. Interesting. And more to do with making me feel better about some internal stress or anxiety or conflict I'm having in the relationship. And so what we're looking for is not solutions to a problem. We're looking for me to... We want internal validation so yeah. that I don't have to deal with it with right. my partner anymore. My partner's messed up, right? Right. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the biggest issue is is then we feel this conflict. We feel this anxiety. We're struggling with, with compromising and negotiating with our partner. So we go find a third party that makes us feel better, and then we don't have to deal with it anymore. Yes. And the problem then is that the problem doesn't actually get resolved in the relationship, and then it can fester. It can lead to more problems. Oh, how interesting is that? And um, and be careful because I've I've heard many times someone will come to me and say, well, so I was talking to my friend and my friend said that her husband did this same mm-hmm. thing and, you know, whatever it was and it could never – they couldn't recover and so they had to divorce. So I just want to kind of nip it in the bud and – Right. You're like, well, they're different relationships. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so we, we use those anecdotes and we use it. Like you said, we go to someone and say, he's crazy, right? Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's crazy. You know, and we find those people. And usually we only confide sometimes in people that we know mm-hmm. what the answer is going to be beforehand. And yeah. so we're not looking for new information. We're not looking for those those solutions. We're looking for someone that I think is going to just say, yeah, you're right. And your partner's crazy. And <laughs> now I feel better about it. It's so you got to choose carefully who you're going to confide in, um, but we've also there's been research too showing that um, when one person divorces in a family, that that one that person's friends start being more likely to divorce. Yeah. Brothers and sisters are more likely to divorce. Mm-hmm. It kind of spreads, and I'm assuming because. It's who we are confiding in. Yeah, that, that's a part of it. So our fancy academic term for that is what's called social contagion. Yeah. Uh, which mean, And we see it actually with divorce. We see it with obesity. We see it with a lot of things really? uh, in, your, in your social network. And you're right. Part of it is that I see someone that goes through that divorce and, and they've gone through – and now they have life experience, right? And so now it's, oh, that's – why did you make that decision? How did you make that decision? It puts divorce on the forefront. It makes me think about it a little bit. Yeah. And then, like you said, is is now I go to someone maybe for relationship advice that has had a failed relationship. Right. Not, not usually the best. Usually not. Yeah. But, yeah. I guess, again, but if that person's going to validate what I want them to validate, which right. is that it's not me, it's them, right. we'll go to anybody. Right. Exactly. Huh, that's pretty interesting. So I guess, too, we have to focus on both sides of this, why and who we confide in. And so you can give us advice there. And then what happens when somebody comes to you as a confidant? What what are things we should do and how should we think about making sure that we're confiding in the right person? Right. And what should we say about our marriage that doesn't eventually come back to hurt us. Right. So it's one of the biggest things you're looking for, and this is the hardest part for a lot of people, going back to what we were just saying, is I have to find someone that cares about both of us mm. in the relationship. So not my best friend from high school. Yeah. You know, not, not your not mom, just my maybe. sister yeah. or my brother, right? Maybe not my mom. Hopefully hopefully, hopefully my mom cares mom. about both of us, right? It depends, yeah. 
but find someone who cares about both of us. And so when they're talking to me, it's not just about me. It's not someone that is because oftentimes friends are the biggest culprit here. Yeah. Is that my best friend cares about me and maybe cares about my partner in a tangential way because it affects me. Yeah. But but friendships are inherently about making each other feel good. And so that's where my friend is naturally going to go is I want you to feel good. So I'll tell you what you want to hear to make right. you feel good. Yeah. But if you have someone that cares about you as a relationship and both partners, they're more likely to be thinking about how things affect both of you and to give advice that's going to help both of you. Yeah. And, and that's the other piece is that I also want to go to someone who might have some good experiences, some some good personal anecdotes, but is going to give me potential solutions. Again, it's not about just making me feel better. If anything, a good confidant is someone that's willing to challenge you a little bit and say, well, what about this perspective? Yeah. What about this that, you you know, you, you told me this has happened with your partner. Have you ever thought about it in this way? Or have you ever thought about what your partner's feeling in these situations? So someone that is willing to give me and challenge me a little bit is typically a better confidant than someone that's just going to be a yes man. Interesting. And what about um, like depth of experience? Does it matter that, I mean, it seems like if you're going to talk marriage, you ought to be talking to somebody that's married. Yeah. Or if you're going to talk about whatever troubles of marriage, you ought to be talking to somebody who's had troubles. Yeah. Actually, many, many years ago, I was involved with a a research study where we were studying low-income, unmarried young couples in their 20s. And and what we did in that study that made a huge difference in their life is we just matched them up. We went and found a couple that married for 30, 40 years in their community, um, usually in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and said, we just want you to meet once a month, a couple times a month, and just talk about relationships and marriage. And it made a huge difference in these young couples' lives. Um, and so we, we call them marriage mentors. Like you said, experience is, is good, but you want to be the right kind of experience. Right. And, and I think almost any young or even more experienced married couple, married couple, if they could have a marriage mentor in their lives, say, hey, there's this couple that we look up to that, you know, no marriage has everything put together, but they've been together for decades. They seem like they understand each other. What can we learn from them? Because I guarantee you, you find a good, healthy couple that's been together for 30 years. They've gone through a lot of conflict. They've gone through a lot of ups and downs. And they can speak to and give that advice and give that experience and give those potential, uh, again, perspectives that maybe you don't have in the moment. Do you need to find somebody that's pro-marriage? Because um, it used to be – I mean, I have a lot of clients that their therapists are telling them, you just need a divorce. Mm-hmm. This is just not good for yourself. You right. need yourself aware or whatever. And um, do you want to find somebody that's pro-marriage um, that's giving the advice? Or does that lock them into then the belief that you always have to stay married? Right. Um, I, I, if I'm going to lean one way, I'd say lean towards someone who's pro-marriage. My um, graduate advisor, Bill Doherty, is a very strong advocate yeah. um, for this. He's got a whole network of marriage and family therapists. And by the way, one of the greatest researchers yeah. and well-known researchers in the industry. Yeah, and, and he has a, a network of marriage and family therapists that sign a little affidavit that says, I'm going to be a marriage-first yeah. uh, therapist. Now, you're right. You don't want to go too far and say, you know, no matter what, you know, yeah, I know your husband's beating you every other day, but yeah. you should really try you to really work on that. You really need to make this work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but there's something about what we know from all the research on relationships is that one of the most toxic things that can happen is when I start to have that little seed in the back of my head that says, maybe I should leave. And as soon as someone else outside my circle starts to validate that, it's really, like I said, it is almost toxic to the relationship yeah. because then everything that happens in the relationship 
starts to feed that. Well, maybe it would be better if I left. Maybe it would be better if I found someone else. It's really hard to get past that. And so I think if you have someone you're confiding in whose first stance is that we want to make this relationship and marriage work, that marriage is the best solution, you know, outside of some extreme examples, that's probably the best way to go. Absolutely. What about, because again, I also hear um, a lot of marriage counselors that are divorced. Should you see, I mean, to me, they have great insight. They still have their they still have their theoretical background and they might they might have some powerful insight because they've been through it does it matter if your therapist is divorced does it matter if if this this person has been divorced right. not necessarily but but let me say something that probably make a lot of therapists upset is i think a good healthy person or person that's going to get the most out of a therapy session is someone that comes into it from not what we call a top-down perspective, which means I go and I sit, and you're the expert, and, and you you'll hand fix me the me. knowledge, right? And it's more of a collaborative relationship. And what that means is that even if my therapist is divorced, that the this is not about them teaching me anything, right? Yeah. A good therapist is helping me think through issues on my own, take a different perspective, think about how I'm approaching different things, whether it's cognitively or emotionally. And so in in that way, that therapist might draw on their own experiences as they're helping me. But in a lot of ways, with a good therapist, their experience might not even be as relevant to what's happening. Because it's not like going to a friend or a family member and saying, well, back in my day, you know, five years ago with my wife, my ex-wife, here's (laughs) what happened. Um, and, And so I think it's helpful to be aware of that with my therapist. And And again, if they're saying things as a client, I'm thinking, okay, you know, how is their experience maybe filtered what they're saying. Yeah. How do I interpret that? What are some things I can use? What are some things maybe I need to be cautious of? Because I know my therapist has this potential background. That's a that's great advice. Um, again, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. He's also the co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox. Um, and marriage is hard anyway, so then we need some help. So we've been talking about how to be, how to find a person you could confide in. Uh, let's also talk about um, if somebody comes to you to confide in you and you become a confidant, what advice do you give those of us that, that people regularly turn to? Right. So, so number one, and this goes across pretty much any time someone comes to you, one of the biggest things you need to do is validate. And and validate what that means is acknowledge their emotions, even if you don't agree with them. Validate what they're going through. It's really easy when someone comes and confides to you to make judgment calls like, oh, you're taking that too far or you don't need to feel that way or that's absolutely how you feel. Is is validation is simply acknowledging what they're going through and say, oh, that that must be really hard. Or, yeah, that's got to be really taxing on you. Or I can see how that would be really emotional what you're going through. A lot of times that's a really important first step to to help them feel okay, help them kind of manage their emotions that they're going through. Um, and then once you get past that, uh, again, the, the thing you're guarding against is a confidant is you want to make sure that you're not just being that third party that's making them feel good about themselves in the sense that you're just saying yeah. yes to everything and you're throwing their partner under the bus, is be really weary about one, when they're being critical of their partner, but then two, not feeding into that and you being critical about their partner too. In other words, don't make it the, just a bashing session yeah. for how crazy their their spouse is or how insane their girlfriend or boyfriend is, is, is really think hard about not just validating the person you're talking to, but validating the partner that's not there Yeah, and thinking about that. Um, and that can be another really important piece to it. I think about it a lot where I, I want to, I want to be 
loyal to the one that's not there because someday they may be there. Right. And then if they're there, I have to be able to show integrity with what I've said and what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Presently. So yeah. that's kind of a mind game um, where it would be easy to throw somebody under the bus. I also have found um, sometimes they're coming to you just to be validated and that's it. They don't mm-hmm. need advice. Even right. if they ask for advice, a lot of times they don't need the advice. They just mm-hmm. need to be heard. Yeah. And, and, and the perspective for doing that is that they need to be validated. They, they need to maybe cool down because they just had an argument. And then as you do that, that gives them freedom to go back to their partner and resolve the conflict sometimes. Okay, I feel better about this. Yeah. I feel like someone you know cared about my perspective. Now I can go back. And, and that's what the kind of direction you want to keep pointing them yeah. is, okay, now take this back to your partner. What, what's the next step go back with and, your partner? Go back and work on this. Yes. is um, It really, I look at it like a, it's a sacred duty. If somebody's confiding in you about their marriage, be very, very careful. Right. This is a, it's a, you're walking on thin ice. And sometimes like you're saying, they're just looking to be validated Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be, and you validate them when they shouldn't be. And you, you could create a monster. Right. And, And one of the other things you're looking for in these, in these types of conversations is sometimes they'll tell you something like, well, I've never told my husband this, but here's how I feel. Or I've never told my girlfriend this, but this is what's going on. And, and those are moments where you really need to reflect right back and say, well, you really need to go tell your partner these things. Again, don't become the person that gets all the secrets in the relationship. Don't yeah. become the person that is allowing them to not be truthful and open with their partner. And if you sense that, the best advice you can give is like, well, whatever you just – I've said this many times to people. Everything you just said to me, I want you to go back and tell your spouse. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've, I've, as I've talked to students and other people in my office, they'll come and look at me, you know, here's, here's 10, 15 minutes of what I'm struggling with in my marriage, what's, what I'm struggling with in my relationship. And I'll ask them, well, have you ever said that to your spouse? Well, no, I'm scared. Well, just like video record this yeah, right now right, and just right, go right. play it for them if you don't feel like you yeah. can say it. But, that, but that's a really important thing as a confidant is to be aware of that dynamic. And again, your goal is to help them improve the relationship, not just make them feel better as an individual. Right. And I guess that's part of it. If I could help them get stronger, feel more empowered to go say what they haven't said, mm-hmm. that might be the best thing you can do is right. turn them back, send them back to their partner, but give them some powers, maybe help them figure out how they can say mm-hmm. it, help them rewrite right. the words, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And um, – what do you think about – I mean I'm always worried if somebody is coming to see me as a client and their spouse doesn't know. Right. That says a lot too. It does. Yeah. And and, and again, as a confidant, I can be asking questions about why. You yeah. Know, why, why do you feel like you're not able to do that? Help them get some insight maybe into what what their anxieties are and what their fears are. And then and then sometimes it's baby steps and say, okay, well, if if you don't feel like you can talk about issue A – Yet, maybe you can at least talk to your partner about why you don't feel like you can go to them about things. Right. And have that conversation first. And then hopefully we can work towards, you know, whatever the specific issue or concern is. Yeah, that's really good. I've even just, I mean, I've seen just simply giving them a book Mm -hmm. to go read that they read around their partner and highlight and mark. Mm -hmm. It opens up conversations. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to get some conversation happening. You also focus on solutions. So, your job isn't just advice, but 
some actionable doables. You right. want them to go be able to do something. Yeah. And again, what can you do to not just make you feel better, but to make the relationship better? Yeah. And and thinking about in terms of resources, that my job is to supply you with more capacity, more resources as a person that's going to help build this relationship up. Yeah. What's cool, too, I found um, is when a couple's been through trouble and then they get help and they they find their way out in a healthy way, they become a really powerful mentoring couple. Mm-hmm. I, I really think we ought to formalize mentoring yeah. couples. Yeah. In fact, like I said, going back to the research I mentioned before, it's it's one of the things that consistently has shown itself to be one of the most powerful things we can do yeah. across many realms of our lives is to have mentors. Yeah. But but we don't have in our society a lot of good mechanisms for that. And I mean, some faith groups do yeah, that. A lot of churches. Um, yeah. A lot of churches will have you know something around that. But it, but it really is. I mean, again, think about if we had some sort of structure for every newlywed couple. You know, for the first two years of their marriage, would meet with a couple that's been together for forty years once a month. Just, How powerful! You know, go out for lunch yep. and talk about what's going on. And and even if like the the mentors had a curriculum or questions mm-hmm. they could ask, best practices. Yeah. yeah, huge. Right, make a big difference. And yet, yeah. Instead, we just fight. Right, and then we yeah. kind of go to our own parents. Who should throw? So if we're parents, yeah. we have to be really careful. And right. a lot of us are terrified because. I don't want this to get messed up or you're going to mess my life up. So right. we, we might take sides. What what specifically would be different about any of this advice as a parent? Yeah, the really tricky thing with parents is parents have pre-existing bag- baggage on two fronts. Yeah. One, I've raised this person yeah, for my whole life. I know them. So I've, I've got that. But two, I have these pre-existing beliefs about their spouse, right? My, my son or daughter-in-law that might in some cases not be super positive. Totally. And so I see a lot of parents have to be really cautious about the, you know, I wasn't thrilled about that guy when you were dating and now you're coming to me with this advice. And, and so now I'm validated in all my concerns. Yeah. You have to be so careful about that because if, if my son or daughter picks up on that, again, that can plant that seed. Oh, mom and dad maybe think it's better if I leave. It's so true. So you have to be really careful about um, that piece. But but one of the things I tell parents a lot of times that maybe is different in other situations with therapists or with friends is I say, you know, if I have my son or daughter come to me that and they want this kind of relationship or marriage advice – one of the things that I would oftentimes do, depending on the talk, context and the subject, is say, well, yeah, I'd, I'm happy to sit down with you and give you some of my thoughts and advice, but let's bring your spouse too. Mm. And I want to sit down with both of you because I want to send the message that I am an advocate for both of you in the relationship. That's great advice. Not just my yeah. son or daughter. And because you really you've, – you've, I guess too you also have to be very careful what you share with your parents because you can't, you can't reload that gun. Right. Like that's – Yep. Once that's shot, once they know stuff, right? So, uh, how do you know what to share? I, I think it's the same thing that we've been talking about. I mean, I think it's okay to share concerns and and anxieties and fears that mm-hmm. you have with your parents. Uh, again, it's thinking about why am I doing it, yeah. and am I doing it in the right context? Am I doing it? And like I said, I, I think more often than not, doing it with my partner can be a really strong thing and to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I have this fear about us in, in this relationship or this conflict that we keep having over and over again. Are you okay if we go talk to my parents and just, I want to get their perspective and I want you to come with me Yeah. so that this is not just me complaining. This is both of us seeking advice from someone that we look up That's to. That's so powerful. Well, Brian, I think you did it again. You're saving our hides. Good. 
and, to. and helping us confide better and be better confidence. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name, an associate professor right here in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Go look up his book, uh, The Marriage Paradox. Go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. drbrianwilloughby.com. He's the man, the myth, the legend. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. We'll continue the journey up next, do a little empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. It's time for some empty news here on the Matt Townsend uh, News, uh, Matt Townsend Show. Let's get to Jeffrey Simpson. Jeff, what... uh, What's the empty news today? You know, I couldn't resist this one. Terry usually covers the political news. Yeah. And we've talked about how Vladimir Putin was just reelected and and Trump, you know, congratulated him and everything. That's yeah. that's, you know, a different discussion. He Trump would have had a field day had he known about this one, though, because, you what? know, he was really big into there being a lot of voter fraud during the election, even though he won. It went in his favor. Yeah, exactly. Which is mind boggling. Um Apparently in Russia they are they were accepting votes from bears. Oh like the Chicago Bears. No. Like a bear. A really? bear showed An up. A bear showed up <laughs> and voted. And it must have counted. I, I have some video here. Yeah. I mean the listeners won't be able to hear it, but you at least will be able to see the bear oh. that walked in and cast his vote it's a, it's actually during the election it seems like it's a person in a bear costume hmm that doesn't seem like a real bear uh simply because there's a there's a major gap between their headpiece and their neck piece he does seem piece. to be walking quite well on his two feet yeah plus uh, he he's holding the paper like you would like a human would hold the paper i i'm not hmm. sure that's a real bear so, do you think <laughs> I do you think you could get away with something like that here in the states? Well, I, I, I would think they would want to see your yeah. face. Yeah, you'd have to have some ID. And speaking of ID, that leads very well into the next MT news story. What? So, uh, you've been pulled over before? Uh, yeah. What's Every the first year thing? Of my life. What's one of the first things that they say to you, the police say to you, when you roll down your window and they walk up next to you? Um, they'll say, hello, sir. No, they're usually like, Matt, how you doing? Because I get caught so many times. Then they're like, uh, they always ask, do you know why I pulled you over? Okay. But as far as the business aspect of it, what do they... Do you have your license and your registration? Right. Okay. So there's a guy that got pulled over and... Uh, <laughs> He didn't have his ID with him, but he had somebody else's ID. Uh-oh. I don't um, have mine, but here's my friends. <laughs> well, it, nothing like that. Uh, this was in England, actually. When asked to hand over his license and registration, the man presented a spoof Homer Simpson's Homer Simpson license to the police officer. Oh, so the guy's just having fun. Here is the a picture of it. Oh boy! So it ha- it says oh. Simpson Homer. It's got a birth date on there. It's got uh, it even has his signature on there and his address. He must have been visiting because this is the Springville address <laughs> in. Or Springfield, Springfield address in the United States. And a picture of Homie scratching his head. Right. Which 
So was did the cop play along? Did he think this was cute, funny, or did he just immediately tase him? <laughs> I think they thought it was funny enough that they posted it on social media because this is this is from their police department that you find the picture. But yeah, it uh, it didn't work obviously, and uh, the man was charged with not having a license and yeah. the registration, and all that. So there's really only one thing you can say to that. Go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a that's a great way to say it. Said, oh, yeah. Said like a true professional. Yeah, I don't know that I'd be pulling that out. I, I've found, and this is maybe a problem with uh, a lot of people that get in trouble with cops, is it's kind of a serious thing for them to pull you over. Yeah. And maybe we don't see it as seriously as they do. Yeah, so maybe handing them a license with a cartoon yeah. character on it is not the best way to approach that when they're probably already agitated at you for breaking the law in some right. way or form. That's why I always like to keep a treat in the car in case a cop pulls me over. I could offer him a treat. A bribe? No. No, like like cookies. I, like I think technically that would be considered Girl a bribe. Scout cookies or something. Bribe. Uh, maybe some nachos. Absolutely a bribe. Yeah, probably a Stop then. Okay. Interesting. Good lessons. A little empty news for you. Thanks, Jeffrey. Straight ahead, we're going to visit our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show uh, in just a minute. Welcome back. Yes, that's the grooving music that we like to use anytime we go down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Today we'll be talking to uh, Spencer and Jason about the upcoming show. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matthew. Hello there. How you doing? I that, just enjoy your music selection so much. I was say, is that a samba? That's a samba. Hmm. That, did, did it feel like a samba? Yeah, I like you know. I started uh, did, I started moving and grooving yeah. a little bit. Did it get the hips moving? Possibly. Of course it did. Yeah. We're talking about one of the greatest Backstreet Boys fans in the history of mankind in Jason Shepard. Stop it. That's you more than it is me. I don't deny that I like some of their music, but you are like the super fan. Well, I'm an in sync super fan, Jason. Oh. This is this just went boy band crazy. Now, if we're going to argue vocals, then yes, the edge goes to Backstreet. Mm-hmm. Yes. But Backstreet's back all right. Putting on a show. <laughs> You'd be tearing up my heart if you didn't pick in sync. Uh, wow. <laughs> you I guys. like to go old school with the uh, boy bands, and I like to go with uh, New Kids on the Block in KOTB. Ooh. Ooh. It ain't no lie, baby. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> bye, bye, bye. So okay. great. That's great. So Man, great. I, uh, this is exciting for me. Isn't it? Yeah. I didn't know we were going here. But, well, anytime I can bring up Justin Timberlake, whether it's part of a boy band or just when just he's in his solo, solo career, career. It, it's it's a good day. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I gotta I've gotta rain on your parade. Just recover a bit. from that. Uh, I, I'm, now I'm trying to figure out where what would be the best thing to go because I just <laughs> I just found an article. Uh, a, a writer with the Deseret News is saying maybe it's time for BYU basketball to move on. Hey, get in line, dude. <laughs> Doug Robinson's a good columnist. Yes. And he was a BYU athletics beat writer for many years for the Deseret News. But he's not the first to think this nor write about it. And so he can join a growing throng. Of, of yeah. And are they saying, 
the coach, Dave Rose, or the team moves on to the what are we what's our ultimate objective in moving on? Do we need a new coach? Do we need a, just a new league? Do we need New Jersey's? It's interesting that you ask that, Matt, because we talked to now former assistant head basketball coach Heath Schroyer yesterday. He's yeah. off to McNeese State about BYU fans and their perception of Dave Rose and how the national media views him compared to the hyper-local media. Mm. It is very interesting to hear it from one of the coach's mouths, the guy that's very close with Dave Rose and what he thinks about BYU fans and how they approach a guy who has known only 20-plus win seasons and either the <laughs> NCAA tournament or the NIT. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. That's the guy you keep, right? But fans. So I don't know if the article so much was saying BYU needs to move on from Dave Rose, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, you can interpret it however you want. I think that the emphasis is on it's not working out in the West Coast Conference. Yeah, you got to get That's the way conference. I took it, too. I did that too. It, was, it was time for BYU, according to, to Doug Robinson, it's time for BYU to move to the Mountain West. But it, it, it's, it's very easy to say that. There's so many factors that goes into that that you have to evaluate on whether or not it's good. I mean, certainly BYU is not going if Gonzaga's not going, and that hasn't even happened yet. No. And just because Gonzaga goes doesn't guarantee that BYU's going to go. Right. So there's so many things that are up in the air and, you know, that quite honestly, BYU themselves, Tom Homo and everybody, you know, they have their own – thoughts on what's best and they they're looking long term for BYU they're going to do whatever they feel is best for BYU long term what is the end goal for BYU basketball it's to make the NCAA tournament yeah and to win a conference championship so if Gonzaga leaves the West Coast Conference to the Mountain West then does BYU have a better chance of winning a conference championship and getting to the NCAA tournament if they stay in the WCC or if they follow Gonzaga, mm. who will still be really good, uh, yeah. to the Mountain West? Then they can lose in the Mountain West. Anyway, that sounded rude. Hey, um, great, great insight, by the way. And uh, what's you, know, you guys have this show they call BYU Sports Nation. And it's on today, too, right? You do it every day. Yes. Absolutely. But we have changed the name. It is now the Matt Townsend Show. Really? Welcome to the big time. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I don't know what to say. We consider ourselves the second half of the show. Oh, We're extending it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. At least for the BYU radio people, right? <laughs> the, the funny thing is it's my favorite half of the show. Ooh. Yeah, I love your half. Because um, you don't have to do anything? I get to just watch or yeah. listen and <laughs> yes. do both um, and, and rub my feet. I always take my shoes off, and then I like to have popcorn. It's a Why fun, wouldn't you? It's a fun day. Do your thing, Matt. What's on your show today, gents? Oh, we're discussing... What we just talked about a little bit with uh, how BYU is perceived by national and local media and fans and what moving on actually means or would mean. Uh, We'll also be discussing another classic rivalry moment for BYU and Utah. Oh, baseball? Uh, Yes. Yes. And Jason was there to witness every (gasps) single pitch in Mm -hmm. person. And how about this? With Utah, a team that BYU fans in large part dislike— Taking on St. Mary's, a team that BYU fans in large part do not like, facing each other in the NIT. Who do you want to lose the least? (laughs) That's That's what we will be discussing today. Alex Jensen, the voice of the St. Mary's Gales, will join us as we all jump on board the, uh, the Gale train.
The Gale Train. Is that yeah, what yeah, you're I calling think mo- it? I think most will, right? Most. Absolutely. <laughs> How great. Oh, boy. Who do you want to lose the least? That's great. It's a fantastically crafted question. <laughs> it really is. And again, it just shows the great skill that you all bring to your show. Well, the Matt Townsend show. To throw the, Ben Bagley into uh, yeah. ben Bagley. the mix as one of the creators of the Matt Townsend yeah. greatness. The, the, extended, the extended version of the Matt yes. Townsend show. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I, again, I, I, like, I like your version better. <laughs> I don't know why. It's just so much more fun. Well, it's it's that talent, it's that ability that you'll get to enjoy, folks, in just five short minutes. BYU Sports Nation, today with Spencer and Jason, you're not going to want to miss it. They're, they're going to be talking BYU baseball. Notice they didn't tell you who won the baseball game. No, I know. In fact, I had to look it up, but I'm not going to say it now because why not? that's part of their tease. Ah, it's part of their tease. It was a nail biter. It was a nail biter if you've got nails. Hmm. I just... I bit mine off. So yeah. Gone. Sorry to, yeah. to get so personal there. Well, we've had a great show. We've learned a lot today. And if again, if you haven't been paying attention to the show, if you missed one of the earlier hours, if you happen to be driving to work, go download the BYU Radio app. You're not going to want to miss it. You can also get us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just look up the Matt Townsend Show. Also on um, – you can just say like, hey, Alexa. Now you've done it. I just set off a bunch of Alexas. Ah. Play the Matt Townsend Show or play the Matt Townsend Podcast and it will take you right there and uh, that will that'll take you to the next level. Now – To finish out the show, we always like to end with a hero story. And today's hero story is a woman that buys $600 worth of Girl Scout cookies and, uh, you know, has the girls give those cookies out to strangers. She wants to change lives. A Seattle Girl Scout troop is ending the cookie season on a sweet note. The annual cookie sales gives uh, Girl Scouts a lesson in business. For this troop, it's also given them a lesson in kindness. At first, I was really surprised. I didn't know what to do, Girl Scout Nora Wall said. Nora Wall and Ruthie Bridgman had set uh, uh, up outside of a grocery store when a woman approached their table. She said, I remember this lady coming up, and she was like, hey, if I buy all these cookies, will you hand them out to everyone that comes out of the store, Ruthie said. And they were like, yeah, I guess. And the woman spent $600 buying cookies. Nora and Ruthie uh, had a hard time giving the cookies away. Some people just didn't believe that somebody had actually done that. Incredibly, the random act of kindness didn't end there. It made its way inside the grocery store where Cammie Nierhoff is a cashier. We had a lady in my line, people in front and people in back, and she bought all of the groceries um, for the people that were in front of her. How cool is that? See, the kindness spreads. That's why you pay it forward, and it just keeps spreading. All day, it just seemed like people were doing little things, so I kind of uh, noticed that it inspired a lot of people to give back to each other. Whether it was a dollar or someone was short on six cents, all day long it was happening. It's crazy, folks. And that is why they're the hero of the day. One woman buying $600 worth of cookies and, most importantly, being willing to give them away. That's what makes a hero, folks. Just your willingness to care, to look out for others, and to start paying it forward. It does become contagious. So today, go start it. Go start it in your area. Go start it with your family and friends. That's our show. We will be back again tomorrow to continue to help you become the good in the world. BYU Sports Nation is up next.